it, it's crazy to get involved in those debates because nobody ever, ever comes over to the other side. Nobody ever says, you know what, you're right. Well, it just know, doesn't happen. At least with the comic book stuff, you know, you can kind of just, you know, discuss it. You can argue it. People can get pissed with each other. But in the, at the end of the day, you know, it is just comics. You know, it, and, it, and it, wait, wait, wait. What was that thing you just said? What? <laughs> that, that didn't make any sense at all. The, dude. It is just comics. <laughs> yeah. That, wait, don't say that again. <laughs> yeah, but you know what the bottom line on that is? You like what you like. And you don't always even, you're not always even able to say why you like something. Sometimes it just tickles your fancy for whatever reason. And you can't control, you know, somebody might tell you this, I don't like this because X, Y, Z. And you could sit there and say, yeah, that makes sense. All right. Or I do like this because X, Y, Z. And maybe they win you over a little bit. But ultimately you can't, you can't tell somebody they're wrong for liking something. Are we back? Yeah, I can. Back to the bin. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. This is number 94, the shameless, obligatory, coattails riding, Dark Knight Rises movie tie-in episode. Or, as I like to call it, the some Batman stories that are actually good episode. (laughs) My name is Scott Gardner. I knew you guys would like that. And joining me are my pals, Paul Spataro and Michael Bailey. Hello. Hey there. (laughs) How's it going, guys? It's going great. Excellent. I mean, I'm recording with you two. How could it get any better? Oh, I can think of a few things, well... but this is still pretty high <laughs> on my list. <laughs> Linda Carter could drop by, but that ain't going to happen. So, <laughs> And what would you do if she did? I mean, seriously. Oh, this is a family-friendly, well, maybe <laughs> sort of, kind of, maybe sort of family-friendly show. Uh, um, I would stick with I'm married, so. <laughs> or is Linda Carter Oh, no, no, no she's pass? on that list. She's top oh, she's of that on... list. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I think she's most every entry on that list. So. <laughs> now, my wife gets, uh, she gets Rick Springfield, I get Linda Carter. You win. Yeah, my my wife went to see Magic Mike last week, mm-hmm. so now the guy from that is on her list. Oh. Uh, what's his name? Channing Tatum. Oh, the block of wood. God, uh-huh. that guy sucks as an actor. Well, he's the kid. He's the guy from GI Joe. Yeah, he sucks as an actor. <laughs> uh, she, I don't think she really cared about his acting. She's she's going on and on about his dancing and his uh, I guess his just his physique, his unit. See? I don't know. I don't think they went that far in the movie. I don't, oh, I don't know. Not? I didn't see. I heard some women talking about it at work. I, th- I thought that they had the, the the full Monty going in that my, movie. Uh, Maybe could... they did. I hope never to know. <laughs> my, my wife only had two entries on that list because she's just not that type of person, and one of them's dead. So I guess if Johnny Depp stops by, that's the only thing I have to be concerned about. <laughs> Who's the dead guy? Uh the lead singer to Typo Negative. Oh, I okay, don't know that would his be... name. Yeah, I don't know that one. My my wife's other one would be John Bon Jovi. <laughs> <laughs> At least he's got a Superman tattoo, so you know you can feel. Yeah, like, there you go. <laughs> feel a little bit better about it. <laughs> For 
some reason. I don't even know what your wife looks like. I got this image of her <laughs> getting it on with Bon Jovi while he's singing. What do you get a Wookiee for Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I should be insulted or if I should be amused. (laughs) Oh, real quick before we get into this, I wanted to talk about something that mysteriously showed up on my doorstep. It was a big old box of awesomeness. I got here, let's see, I got Action Comics issues 414, 426, 432... 437, I can't make out the number on that one, 447, 453, 455, whole bunch of action comics. Um, you know, I don't think, I think there's only one of these I actually have. I think I need all of these issues. I'm really intrigued by the one with the awesome cover of Superman juggling a car and, like, shaking the bad guys out of it while, out, <laughs> like, all these guns and money and stuff fall out of the car. And Clark Kent's around a corner ripping open his uh, leisure suit going, Hey, wait a minute. If that's Superman, who am I? I love this. It's a great cover. Uh, Finally, finally got a copy of G.I. Combat number 274. Um, There's a long involved story with this, but basically every resource in the world seems to be wrong on the the proper issues of GI combat that actually have a pre-crisis monitor appearances. It's not 275 and 276. It's 274 and 275. So all these years I thought I had them all, now I finally do. I actually have the one that I that I needed to complete my uh, monitor collection. Justice League of America wonder number 126 141, 149. Ooh, that's a creepy ass cover with the Justice Leaguers all sliced up on the cover of it. <laughs> that's freaky looking. That's my first Justice League issue ever. Really? I think uh, 126 might be mine, actually. Does that have uh, um, Two Face in it somewhere? That's 125. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's that's some of my earliest uh, issues with uh, with the Justice League. Ah, uh, Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes 204-213, which has a great Mike Grell cover with a big old dinosaur biting the Legion cruiser. I love this cover. 214, 215, 217, which I think, I think this is that one with, uh, with Laurel Kent, I think. I could be wrong, but I think that might be the first appearance of Laurel Kent in that, which is an issue I desperately needed. 238. Superman, first series, number 248, one of my favorite issues, 279, where he teams up with uh, Batgirl, 283, which I've never seen this issue before, it's great, it's got Superman coming in the window, and he's changing into this guy that really, really, really looks like Steve Lombard, it's hilarious, Uh, 304, 306, Battling Bizarro, we got 323, great cover by uh, Garcia Lopez on that, him battling uh, the Atomic Skull. I think that's his first appearance. Oh, is it? Yeah. And three sweet copies of the Untold Legend of the Batman. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And just about the time I was thinking, oh, I wish there was some more Batman. Ah, Batman. From the, what is this one? Is this the 30s or the 40s? No, 30s. 
Batman from the 30s to the 70s. Now, I have the Superman one. I've had the Superman one since I was a kid. I've never been able to lay hands on the 30s to the 70s for Batman before, and now I've got it. And I can't wait to dig into this, because I'm telling you this, uh, the um, Neil Adams and Irv Novick stuff in black Mm -hmm. and white in this is just awesome. I love the stark black and white. Uh, 70s Batman stuff in here. It's gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. All of these from my buddy Mike Bailey. And dude, thank you so much. I really, really, really appreciate it because these, uh, just about everything here is stuff that I needed to fill holes. And I, yeah, I couldn't remember what you needed. And I was trying to get that package out because it was ostensibly for your birthday, but I kind of missed the boat on that i hope you enjoyed the card which was my revenge for the card oh where is the card yeah that's right hang on a second where is that i meant to i meant to mention that but uh no batman from the 30s to the 70s is my first exposure to batman in the comics when i was a kid the school library had it and i had an extra copy uh, lying around, and I thought you could give it a good home. So absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Because I, I eventually, I'd like to get. Well, there were three of those, right? The other one was Captain Marvel, right? Shazam. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. I, need- I had the Batman and the Superman ones back when they were new, and uh, I did. I lost them at some point along the line. There I found a- the. Oh, I found sorry, the Batman ahead. one on eBay for six dollars and boys. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry it doesn't have the dust jacket. Scott, same uh, thing with mine. No dust, no <laughs> dust jacket, dude. Uh, don't. But Superman one I haven't found. Don't worry about it at all. No, I, I'm I'm happy just to own it because I've this is something I've wanted for a long, long time. Um, was there not? Was there a Wonder? No, you know what I'm thinking. There of, was uh, a Wonder Woman collection. It wasn't from the 30s to the 70s, but they released it. Had Gloria Steinman do an introduction to it, right? Uh, what was actually, that, like so- the Wonder Woman encyclopedia or something like that. Is that that the- was a separate thing. That okay, was one of the, that was one of Fleischer's thing. But I actually saw both of those uh, at Dragon Con last year, and the guy wanted like 80 bucks a piece for them, and I went, you know, <laughs> you can keep that one because. I I I don't I try not to pay a lot for that stuff, personally. That's the kind of thing where if you keep your eyes open, you always find it you know at a better price when they charge a ridiculous amount like that. I I have only seen the Shazam book once, and it was at a show, and it was fifty bucks, and I just didn't have yikes that much money to plunk. To. I was if I would have had the money, I would have gotten it just because I've never been a able to really find it and every time i find it on ebay i get into a bidding war and lose uh because people have deeper pockets than i do so it's just like you know i'm that's it's gonna be in my collection someday but for right now it, 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 it's cool it's cool so do i don't you have uh mm-hmm. do you have superman from serial to serial which c-e-r uh, and s-e-r i'm looking at it right now because that was one i had way back when and i had Lost it along the line, along the way, and when I saw it somewhere, they were charging like twenty five bucks for it. And I was walking through Manhattan one day. I was in there for something, and you know they have those tables where they sell a bunch of books, and they had it there for a buck. Yeah, holy cow! It's a it's a wonderful history of the Superman serials and the Adventures of Superman television series by a guy named Gary Grossman. Who, if you have the first season of The Adventures of Superman on DVD, he did a bunch of commentaries uh, on there, too, that are quite uh, educational. 
if not a little dry, but, you know. I love that show. We've talked about that in the past. I'm glad you like the book, Scott. Absolutely. Birthday, Absolutely. Uh, co- comment on the uh, card. I tried to, you know, what? it's out on the mantle in the next room, and uh, I'm on a tether that's not yeah. quite long enough. So well, I started to walk out there, and then I got to the end of the court, and I was like, yoink. <laughs> so well, I can't reach it. Scott sent me a card with my present uh, presents this year, and uh, it was basically a, a card for like a nine-year-old girl. <laughs> uh, where he called me a princess, so I just called him old. He says something like, you know, I wouldn't say you're getting old this year, and on the inside it says, because you got old last year. <laughs> so, and I wrote him a little note, but we don't have to talk about that. And that was My wife got a kick out of it. She thought that was very funny. I figured she would for some reason. <laughs> yeah, she she likes taking the, uh, the, the old guy swipes at me now. <laughs> Her and the kids both. How much of a gap have you got between you and her? Uh, let's see. Four years. Yeah, ours, ours is six. I'm constantly hearing about how I'm, you know, how I'm 90. That's that's just my wife's <laughs> take on it, which always makes me feel. Yeah, yeah, there's five years between me and my wife, so especially with the gray coming in on the, the old facial hair, it's uh, yeah. I'm hearing a lot of the old man type thing, which sucks because, you know, for... For my twenties, I tried to grow a goatee, but the you know the it it was all blotchy and it was all weird, and now it looks really good and it's gray. So thank you, Mother Nature. You can go fuck yourself. Yeah, my my goatee has been <laughs> turning gray quickly lately. Now, kudos to my wife for a really good geek zinger not long ago because uh, Disney uh, revised their long-standing beard ban, and uh, and now you know if you if you meet certain guidelines you can now have facial hair including growing a full beard and uh and i you know when they first passed the thing jokingly i said "Ooh, i can have my right back and without missing a beat she said i'm pretty sure it would come in as a kenobi these days and i was just like (laughs) nice yeah (laughs) she ain't lying though that's the scary part at least you still got your your you know your Muscled physique and your, uh, you know, your six pack abs. So, yeah, they're out in a box in the garage somewhere. <laughs> I might paint it on like Stallone. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Scott graciously uh, gave me the password to the email box, and I checked it out, <laughs> and it was scary and dark in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, well, what, what happened was I deleted all the spam email. And what was left was, I think there were like 40 messages, but they're all irrelevant because they're all before I joined the show. So I don't know that anybody would be interested in that. But what was interesting is actually there were two from me, uh, and, there was one, and there was one from uh, Andy Leyland. And it was really the timing of it was amazing because uh, I guess it was before he did his first show which you just posted on the Two True Freaks Network last week. Woohoo! And in the email, he's talking about Superman Secret Origin, which is what he covered in his first show. Right. Which is kind of cool. But uh, I think that one possibility as to why we haven't gotten any emails in the last couple of months is because the email bumper is at the very end, and people may hear us sign off and then turn off and not actually hear that. So if anybody has any comments positive or negative, about what we're doing, 
The email address is backtothebins at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. So we'd, we'd definitely be interested in hearing from you, and we would add a little email segment onto the shows, but you got to write to us. I think, uh, I think largely what it has to do with uh, is not only that bumper being all the way at the very end, but also just I think when you don't make a habit of covering email regularly, then it's, uh, you know, you're, you're basically you're not encouraging anybody to write. Yeah. Because, yeah, no, you know, let's face statement. it, we all want to hear our names read on the air. You know, that, that's what it's all about when you're writing in the email. You know, you, you might have valid points and everything, but at the end of the day, it was like when you wrote your letter into Marvel or DC. You know, you, you wanted your letter, you know, you wanted your name on the letters page. You wanted your name in the issue type of deal. I know that's what it is with uh, with writing into shows. I'm the same way. You know, when I write into anybody's show, you know, then I'm waiting and listening, you know, eagerly to to hear my letter read on that show. I, I'm, so I I get it. So, and, yeah, we've been uh, very remiss with the email segment. But yes, as you say, if if they make the commitment to write in, yes, we will will read the uh, the emails on the on the show. And I do apologize to everyone. Whose uh, email is in those uh, those unread messages? <laughs> we're, we're sorry, but at this point, it's going to be so old and uh, off topic. I, I won't remember what the hell they're referring to. So, yeah, the, we'll the just, newest we'll... ones, the newest ones address. Uh, I've got a few things to say about Superman. So, ah, whatever happened to that show? I, I don't know. I don't know. No, no, it just I mean, went away. I mean, this guy said, "Hey, let me be part of the Superman Podcast Network because." You know, I'm Scott Gardner. So, and then nothing. No, you see, the thing is, and this is something that Jeffrey and I struggle on, on another show I do, which I won't mention the name of so I don't get accused of pimping my other stuff again. Um, but no, but but in, in all seriousness, uh, in certain shows, when you've recorded for like four hours and you've got all the stuff for like the episode done, at some point it's just like, do you... It's not that you don't feel like doing the emails, but at that point you're just kind of tired, and and, yeah. and, and and I feel bad about it because I don't want, like Scott said, I don't want people to feel like you know they, um, you know that their words don't matter or that you know we're ignoring them. But sometimes it's just like Jesus, I, I really got to go to bed at, night at this point. So. Right. <laughs> but I, I think in that situation, if we start falling behind, we could do what Andy does and do an email episode. Well, we've done that. Scott and I have done that a few times. Yeah. They're always fun, uh, mainly mm-hmm. because there's no prep work involved. <laughs> right. They're great lazy episodes. I yeah. love them. <laughs> Dude, I'm just not feeling this shit tonight. Let's do a. Uh, let's read our email. Yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> I didn't but get beyond, time beyond to read all that. Beyond all of that, I, I really am still very interested in hearing what the people have to say. You know, Absolutely. Th- they like this. They don't like this. I mean, sometimes the "I don't like this" is better than the "I like it" because it, d- it depends. You know, on why it kind of steers. Like it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes it could be meaningless, but sometimes it could be constructive criticism that'll help us to do better in, in the future. So, you know, I'd be interested in hearing whatever it is they have to say. And sometimes people make concepts and com- comments, and it swamps the show. <laughs> Not that Scott and I know anything about that. Folks, be sure to write in and and reassure Paul over here that that he's doing a great job, that he's a great addition to the show, and that that we want him to stick around because I think that's what this is all about. He he keeps wanting to nose through the email. He's he's waiting for that. (laughs) That's Bataro guy, man. Jesus, you know your show was all right until he showed up. 
aren't you? Come on, be honest. But, you, you've been no, To be fair, to be fair, I did want to hear some of that, and I can't say I would complain <laughs> if I heard it. But through through the guys and you know the two the two true freaks Facebook page and you know just comments that I've gotten back and forth, I've actually gotten a couple of pats on the back, and that's always nice. Uh, what I'd like to hear is, to be honest with you, something more substantive. If, if people have uh, any suggestions as to what they'd like to hear us do, uh, you know, as far as what kind of books we should cover, if there's any theme episodes that would, you know, really work in good, you know, anything like that. I'm, I'm really interested in, in hearing it all. And if they can squeeze in the occasional poll is great. I'm good with that, too. <laughs> Paul is great. Paul is good. Let us thank him for these comics. <laughs> in fact, I may start emailing in under uh, assumed names. And just <laughs> there you go, pull a Stan Lee and just flood the inbox with made-up bullshit. That uh, works. I was uh, I was about to make a Beatles reference too, but uh, what's that? Well, oh. Paul is dead. <laughs> Paul is dead. <laughs> hey, my bird, Paul. <laughs> Actually, Scott, I thought of you today because this. Uh, I was. Uh, helping a customer and he had his teenage daughter with him and she was wearing a Beatles shirt and I'm like does she even know who they are <laughs> so dude there was a guy yesterday uh, came to the front desk and he had on a yellow submarine shirt that I seriously considered like rolling him in the parking lot for <laughs> it was awesome it was oh it was the coolest hey sir can I, can I talk to you for a minute <laughs> can I talk to you about uh, Jesus Christ for just a <clears throat> <laughs> that was wrong. That was so wrong. Uh, not all Jehovah's Witnesses mug people. Uh, yeah, I just I want to go on record saying only that. the ones that are really good at their job. <laughs> so. Oh, you can tell this is a late late night episode, can't you? It's just a mess. So, Dark Knight Rises, huh? <laughs> uh oh, is that where we're headed? I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say this because you know I've been pretty much on record that I'm not I wasn't really looking forward to the film and that I definitely wasn't going to see it opening weekend. I actually ended up seeing Amazing Spider-Man, which I quite liked. Uh, but there was a trailer before Amazing Spider-Man for Dark Knight Rises that I had not seen before, and it was the first time that I went okay. Um, my plan right now is, is through work, we get invited to events. Um, HP, who makes computers and printers and all kinds of stuff. They occasionally have events at movie theaters where they invite retailers to come in. And basically, they show stuff off. They hand out prizes. You can win a laptop, that kind of thing. But they always do it with a movie. And apparently, this time in August, they're doing it with Dark Knight Rises. So I figured not only could I get some cool swag from HP, but see a free movie. So... Thus, I didn't pay to see it, and therefore I feel better about myself. Well, I paid to see it. I went on Friday night, me and, me and my son and uh, another friend and his son, and we enjoyed it. Sorry to tell you that, Scott, and I know it diminishes me ever so much in your eyes. Yes, uh, yes it does. We, and, and enjoyed it to the extent that on Saturday, my, my son was supposed to go out and play basketball with his friends, but uh, one of them started whining that it was too hot out, and the three of them went to see The Dark Knight Rises. So he started two days in a row. He liked it so much. Uh, I do concede right off the bat that uh, it's got the same basic tone as the prior two, and for that reason, I don't expect you to 
feel any differently about this one than you felt about the other two. Uh, but I, I thought the plot was a little bit more in line with the type of comic stories than Dark Knight than the Dark Knight was. Uh, and it almost seemed like it was more of a direct sequel to Batman Begins than it was to the Dark Knight. Even though they, you know, they go into the whole uh, the way the Dark Knight ended—that he was basically the vigilante, and you know, his reputation had been ruined. You know, they do go into that. Uh, one of the things I found very disturbing—not disturbing, but just annoying—throughout uh, the movie is Bane's voice. Uh, there was a lot of criticism with the original trailer about the voice that you couldn't understand what he was saying. So what I think they did was they just redubbed the entire movie to try and make it a little bit more easily understood. But there are still points when I couldn't understand exactly what he was saying. And his voice throughout the whole movie, it sounded to me, the, way, the best way I could describe it is it sounded to me like Sean Connery on steroids. Uh, it... it kind of boomed over all the other sound anytime he spoke and it never modulated based on the circumstances that he was talking in. Uh, there's a point where he's talking out in an open field, there's a point where he's talking in an airplane, and there's a point where he's talking underground and you never hear echoing or you know any type of change in the way it sounds. It sounds exactly the same under each circumstance and I found that a little distracting and I think that could have been done better. Uh, the the script writing I thought was good. I thought they uh, there there were no pointless moments in it. Anything that happened was key to the plot. And if you didn't understand where it was going, uh, it was probably a Chekhov's gun moment, and it, they were going to come back to it later. In that respect, it almost became a little bit predictable at the end because they kind of gave you the clues as they went along as to where they were going to go. Uh, some of it I figured out as it went along for exactly that reason. Some of it I didn't, and when I didn't, I kind of thought back about it and, and kind of thought I should have figured it out all along. Uh, there wasn't, I didn't think, an overly strong political message that they hit you over the head with, which is what I was afraid of with David Goyer, you know, Mr. Uh, Superman has to give up his American citizenship guy. Uh, there there was type of a, kind of a type of Occupy Wall Street plot line that went on but I didn't think that they were really sending a message about the positives or negatives of that uh, Anne Hathaway was absolutely great, she was beautiful and she was a great Catwoman, I heard you talking uh, Scott with Andy uh, about how you didn't really have a, a key you know, your, your Catwoman and I think she may end up being it once you see this one, she was great uh, the movie was pretty intense as it went along, kind of, you know, sitting on your edge of the seat as, as you watched it. And when it did finally close out, I found it to be a satisfying conclusion to the trilogy. I don't really see where they need to make a fourth movie in this particular trilogy, and that should make you happy also. Uh, I think that, you know, when they do decide to make the next Batman movie, they could... They don't necessarily have to start again with an origin, but I think they could just start totally clean from this one and... and go a different direction with it. In fact, I think they're better off going in a different direction because I think anybody who likes this type of movie, they have their Batman movie, and now you know you could satisfy people who want a slightly different movie like Scott. What frightens me, though, is that I hope that they don't um, follow the, the television formula where they go with a, you know, from, a, from a dark Batman to 
Um, Brave and the Bold. Yeah, I was trying to think of how to put it delicately, but basically to a to a kind of ridiculous Batman. Or well, I, no, that's not really fair. Now, he wasn't tr- so much ridiculous as that he was. Um, I, I don't know how to. To me, he felt like a like a real throwback to uh, to even further back than like the '60s or '70s. Uh, he felt like kind of the '50s Batman in a lot of in a lot of ways, and I'm not a big fan of that particular incarnation of Batman. Just a little too a little too silly. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't really think they'll do that in a live action one, but but you never know. I mean, you know, because the the pendulum seems to swing crazily when it comes to Batman in other media, you know? Mm-hmm. I'll agree and, with that. It's it's like the um you know, Batman and Robin to Batman Begins. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, yeah. Where, where the movie makers can be very creative, I think the people that finance the movie projects are the exact opposite of that. And they find something to copycat that was successful before. Uh, and if the trend is anything to look at, Considering what the Avengers did and the Marvel movies did, I wouldn't be surprised if they go for a Batman that's more in line with those. And that, and and if these and if Warner Brothers were smart, they would use this to kind of lead towards a Justice League movie. But I don't I don't have any faith that that's going to happen. I would have loved if they had just a little Easter egg somewhere in the movie that kind of led you to Superman. I think that would have been well. Just very he was cool. pretty upfront about the fact that they weren't going to have anything to do with each other. Yeah, I know, but they still could have. And I, I don't want I I purposely couched my uh, description of the movie in terms to not really give any spoilers because I don't want to do that. Uh, but he, there was something, there, there was one thing in particular that he said he would never do, and he kind of did it. So uh, when you guys have seen it, I, we could talk about that more, but I don't want to, uh, I don't want to put any spoilers out there. But they also had the Superman trailer. Have you guys both seen that? Mm-hmm. I didn't like it. I don't know about you guys. Uh, I thought it looked too much in line with... It, it almost looked like it was out of the watch... Like a little Superman scene in, in the Watchmen movie. And I don't like that tone for Superman at all. I, um... I don't really know how to put this. Because I don't want to piss anybody off. Uh... I, I have some hope for the film. Um, I, I think as a teaser trailer, it really doesn't show us anything, especially if you compare it to something like the Superman Returns teaser trailer, which hits you over the head with Marlon Brando and basically shows us a film that they, they ended up editing down to it not being that type of film. Right. Um, I watched both versions of the trailer, the one with the Jonathan Kent narration, and there was one with Jor-El narration. I saw the Jor-El one. And the Jor-El one gives me a little bit of hope that the ultimate Is that goal... the, 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 sneak, the, the snuck-out footage from... No. Oh, all right. I no, haven't no, seen the, that the, one. The international teaser um, has Jor-El narration instead of Jonathan Kent. Um, but, but I thought that came off as copycat of the Marlon Brando A narration. little bit. But what it did for me was give me hope that the ultimate goal of this movie is that Superman is the light. And that Superman is the the hero that we need. 
are the trailers identical save for the narration? Yeah. Okay, all right. Um, I did like the shot of Superman at the end. I mean, it's all a tease. I mean, that's the thing. It's, I know. It's, I, I really wasn't expecting... Uh, the, the stuff that came out from Comic-Con, which I got to see a better bootleg version of, um, makes for a good, like, full-on trailer. Like, you know, the first trailer they released to kind of give us more of a feel of the movie. Uh, this one, I think it was meant to kind of show, okay, we're going in a different direction. Uh, I have a lot of hope for the movie. Uh, whether I'm wearing rose-tinted glasses, we'll find out next year. Um, but but I, I rather, uh, I liked what I saw. Um, it, it didn't get me excited for what's to come. And sometimes I think that's a good thing, because when I do get excited, sometimes I tend to get disappointed. Whereas if I keep my expectations low, it's, you know, you, you end up being much more easily satisfied. Normally I would completely agree with you, but there are some things, and I think Superman's probably the top of that list, where you've just got to be, you've got to be psyched up for it. You've got to get psyched up for it by the the advertising material, you know? And I think a Superman teaser or full trailer or movie that doesn't just jazz the hell out of you, that, that makes you, you know, excited and, and walking out of that theater feeling like you're a child wanting to go put a you know bathroom towel around your neck and, and jump off the, the top of the house, you know, then, then they f- fundamentally failed, in my opinion. Mm. And... You know, I th- but that's where I'm going to stop in my comments because I'm probably going to shock everybody that knows me by saying this. But I didn't hate the trailer. I, I watched it and uh, and I like now. See, I saw the Jonathan Kent version. Not crazy about um, Kevin Costner as Pa Kent, but I liked what he was saying. You know, so I, I want to give the movie a fair shake. I, I'm going to try my goddamnedest not to go in there with a bunch of prejudice and, and a bunch of foregone conclusions already formed. I really want to give it a fair shake. It's just for me personally, they've got a lot, a lot of obstacles standing in their way. Just about everything I've heard about this movie so far in the in the pre-production phase just sounds like they're just plain doing it wrong. But then I see this trailer and I think, eh, you know, <laughs> it's got possibilities. But the problem is, is that, you know, I thought I watched it and, and walked away going, you know, I could be dead wrong about this movie. Then I went and I watched the old uh, Superman the movie 1978 version, the little 30 second TV, you know, the original TV spot. And it's just what I posted on Facebook today. That movie's 34 years old. I've seen it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Every time I watch that 30-second teaser, I want to pop that DVD back in and watch it again because it just gives me goose pimples. The Man of Steel teaser gave me a, eh, you know, could be all right. And it looks the same thing. You're comparing apples and oranges there, Scott, because that's not a teaser trailer for the movie. That's an ad for the movie on TV, which has music and footage and all that. The original right. teaser, the original teaser trailer for Superman the movie, 
was some Jerry Goldsmith music right. and footage of being flown out of jet. The one, right? After yeah, it that? looks like the Soren pre-show. Yeah, I know, uh, but even that one does. Even that one does. But that uh, I will, I will, you know, perfectly willing to concede that that might be because I know what the finished product was. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm more than willing to admit uh, that that could be the case. And- and I'm, I'm not trying to. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Mike. Paul, go ahead. I, I'm not trying to take away from what you're saying, Scott, because I agree with you wholeheartedly about that. Uh, you know, my thing is, is that I, I think one of the mistakes that people are making, and, and I'm not making a judgment call on this, so don't think I'm trying to mock anybody or say that you're stupid or you're wrong or anything like that. If, if any of you feel this way, uh, both you guys and the listeners, but I, I think one of the things that people kind of lose sight of is that they're like well look at superman the movie and if people at the time fans like us at the time had seen the trailers for superman the movie and got up in arms because it wasn't like the adventures of superman television series which at that point was the touchstone for superman for two generations at that point you know i i i think we we kind of got to let this generation have its own Superman movie. And to... And going along with that, it's going to have its own style of promoting itself. Now, I'm not saying... You know, I could be dead wrong about this movie. I'm, I'm going to go opposite of Scott on this. I'm going in thinking it's going to be good, and Scott may be sitting there working late one Friday, you know, like Thursday night, and since a deep disturbance in the force, like a thousand voices crying out at once and are suddenly <laughs> silenced, you know, and that's me, you know, yelling, fuck, you know, at the top of my lungs because the movie wasn't as good as it could be. But I, I just think, I think comparing it to Superman the movie is inevitable, but a little bit unfair. Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. And and believe me, I've seen those posts on Facebook, and all they do is piss me off because I keep feeling like no matter how I keep trying to rephrase my my statements and, and make my point and make my argument that I'm just not being understood. I don't want them to remake Superman the movie. I don't want Zack Snyder to do what uh what what's his face did and 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 be so enamored and and in awe and and faithful or or I don't really think he was faithful but he felt he was being faithful damn it what is that kid's name that did Superman Brian Singer Richard? Brian Singer thank you you know I I don't want him to be slavish to Superman the movie and I certainly don't want anybody to remake Superman the movie but at the same rate the reason I keep posting stuff up saying hey Zach here's how you make a Superman movie hey Zach here's how you make a Superman movie trailer is that I you know I think every single comic book movie that comes out Unless your in- intention is to make an ass clown out of your character, I think they all need to take a peek at Superman the movie because that, to me, is the gold standard of how you take your character and put him on the big screen. Verisimilitude, being serious about the material, treating it respectfully, treating it like it is an epic. If it is an epic, if it's not an epic, if it's f- Ant-Man, then I don't care. You know, y- That's fine. 
I, I hope that is a nice, lighthearted, silly little superhero movie that comes out, makes a little money, and goes away. But if it's something like Captain America, you can't tell me that the people that made Captain America didn't give a peek at Superman the movie. Come on. You know, and that's all I'm saying is that there's a way that these things should be done. There's a model that already exists for these things, and that's what I want out of this. I just, I looked at this trailer, and I have a little more hope than I did before, but here's the ultimate problem. We can't afford, we certainly can't afford another bad Superman movie, mm-hmm. but I am of the opinion we can't afford just a, eh, Superman movie either. We can't afford even a, a good Superman movie. Superman has to be awesome. It has to be awesome. Because that character is getting so far away from where he should be, both in comics and in other media, that they need to put the real Superman on the screen in order to, to bring that character back to where he should be. Now, I know that there are vast differences and disagreements in fandom as to who the real Superman is. I know oh, there's Jesus not. Christ, yes. Yeah, I, I know there's not one version. But when I say the real Superman, I'm not, I'm not even specific. I don't mean John Burns. I don't mean Kurt Swans. I don't mean George Reeves or Christopher Reeve version. I, 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 there's not a, uh, uh, one. But there is a common denominator to all of those that does not exist in the current comic book version. I'm sorry that that opinion pisses people off, but in my view of the character, it is an axiom that the current comic book incarnation is not Superman. And I'm just seeing that this this movie version looks like he's shaping up to be the new 52 version and that scares the shit out of me it worries me because i don't want kids whether they're my kids or not uh, of this new generation to grow up with that superman thinking that well that's the cool you know that's the awesome i hate that shit i'm already dealing with that with star trek you know i don't want to deal with that with my absolute favorite character i don't want the bastardized lobotomized uh you know just all the all the elements that I, I i find appealing about the character i don't want that to all be stripped away and that's the version of the character that people come to uh, accept and think is awesome i i i'm so sick in the pit of my stomach about that it really worries me i I love this character i love everything pure and wholesome and good that he stands for you know and and people that look at that character that way and think oh he's just boring and he's a boy scout and he's a goody two shoes and he's a cornball if that's what you think then go find something else because this character's (laughs) not for you He's yeah, for no me shit. because I want him that way. You know, it, I it, want him that way. It's you know, I agree with everything you just said. Uh, as somebody who is still, uh, because I just can't let it go because I'm that much of an addict uh, that is still reading the books. Um, I don't think either one is really getting 
who the character is. Even though Dan Jurgens is currently writing and drawing Superman, though he'll be off in a few issues so that Scott Lobdell can take over as writer. I think where I think where DC is missing the boat, and the the problem with talking about stuff like this is the last thing I want to do is come off as sounding. When you're on, like, Facebook, or you're on message boards, or your stuff like that, and you have people who say, you know, well, you know, DC doesn't know what the hell they're doing, uh, I sympathize with that, but it's not something that's going to solve the problem. Right. Us saying that means nothing to DC Comics, uh, because they're just going to look at us as loudmouth fans who are just shooting, you know, who are just typing and sitting in the, you know, blah, 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 parents' basements. Um... What I will say is this, though, that Superman, as you said, represents something bigger than all of us, bigger than anything in comics right now. And because, whether it's the legal battles they're going through, I don't know. But DC has spent a good, I don't know, I'll say seven years at this point, marginalizing this character. Yes. And doing things and making decisions which seem contrary to making him a great, you know, making him the pinnacle of the DC universe again. You know, Grant Morrison is writing some interesting stories, but they don't feel like epic Superman stories. Uh, the, The Superman title itself feels like just another superhero and yeah, Superman can kind of get like that at times. You know, I, you know, it's it's kind of funny because I was thinking about this the other day and thinking about the stories like Scott likes. Uh, I, I, you know, in the Bronze Age and in the 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 Burn and then the Carlin era and the Jurgens era and all that, there were times where the book was just pedestrian. You know, yes. where they were just yes. kind of going through the motions. But with anything that has gone on now for almost 75 years, you're going to have those time periods. Not everything is going to be gold. Every character is like that. You know, Batman is certainly like that. And we'll be talking about some stories that aren't those, thankfully. Because why would we choose boring stories to talk about? But I think that by, you know, pigeonholing him into two books having two satellite books with Supergirl and Superboy, and then having him in the Justice League, but not really feeling like he's the big member of the Justice League, it's like, you know, they're putting Baby in a corner, essentially. Yes. And that is what bothers me about today's DC Comics and how they treat Superman. And what I'm hoping is that next year, when the 75th anniversary is in full effect, and, you know, they're releasing all these trade paperbacks. I'm hoping that the hype for the movie to get you really excited about it is going to start amping up more and more. Because, end of the day, it's a Zack Snyder film. And Zack Snyder is... I like him as a director. Uh, I know some people who are close to all of us don't feel the same way. Right. Uh, but, I, I, you know, I liked Watchmen. I liked Dawn of the Dead. You Dawn know, of the Dead, yeah, I love, I love, I love that movie. Just you know, visually, emotionally, just a fantastic movie. I have no doubt that this movie is going to be spectacular on a visual level, and I think that's those are the trailers we're going to see next year. 
But because but it doesn't just have to be on a visual level. The story has to be great too. You can't and, you know you can't be satisfied with just a visual level. And right. this is true, but I you know from what I understand of the story, I don't know everything. It seems like it's going to be kind of an interesting take on the origin. And then I agree with basically everything you two have said except for one thing, Mike. And I respectfully disagree with. Uh, statement that it shouldn't be compared to the 1978 Superman. When you have a character who's had what is it, five movies now, uh, plus countless cartoon variations, TV shows, uh, and 75 years worth of comic books, if you don't have an an ingrained love of that character, you shouldn't be the one making the movie. Now, in fairness to Zack Snyder, I haven't seen any interviews with him where he's made what I would consider to be a cop-out, where if you said, you know, don't compare me to the other stuff, I would consider that to be a cop-out. But I haven't seen him say that, so I don't want to try and pin that on him. But you should have a love of that character to the point where you're saying to yourself, I'm going to make the most awesome Superman multimedia project ever. People are going to look at my movie and say it's the end-all and be-all of that character. And, and when they see the 78 Superman, they're going to love that, but they're going to love mine even more. That's the attitude you should have. Right. And if you don't have that attitude, don't make the movie. Right. I agree. True. But I, I, th- I think my statement is more of directed towards those that think that the Superman the movie is the only version of the character that ever should be. Right. And as much as I love that film, it, it, it's not... And it is the pinnacle of Superman. Don't get me wrong. Right. I mean, you guys were all in the same generation, I would say. Uh, you know, and, and, and for many of us, I don't know about you, Paul, because again, you know, we're just getting to know each other comic book-wise. Um, and for, for a lot of us, the first time we saw Superman, it was Christopher Reeve. Right. Um, you know, uh, Christopher Reeve and the Super Friends were what got me into Superman. So, you know, it's really easy to get lost in that. But I, I, I think we're all saying the same thing, just in different ways. Right. Well, I mean, also, you know, because I get accused of that. I get accused of being too slavish to Superman the movie. Like, like I think that's the only version that exists. And I, and I don't, you know. Um, as a matter of fact, I don't even think that that was the last, um, again, you know, in air quotes, true version of Superman. I think the last true version of Superman that we got was um, Superman the Animated Series. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, um, God, I can't believe I've just completely blanked on his name. Um, Tim Daly? Tim Daly, thank you. You know, his ver- and the other guy, you know, the guy that took over for him doing the Justice George League Newbert. stuff was really, really good too. But Tim Daly to me, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, I've heard a lot of people comment recently that, uh, that to them, um, Kevin Conroy is always going to be their Batman. In a lot of ways, Tim Daly is always going to be my Superman. You know, right, he's right up there, you know, level with Chris Reeve for me. You know, Chris Reeve, it, you know, was the, was the live action, um, incarnation of that character where i felt like he just walked right out of the pages of a comic you know that's why i love his version of that because he he looks the part obviously but he carries the part i think tim daly's the same way you know i i think he he really his bearing and and his demeanor doing the the animated series um just carried you know he he 
was uh, absolutely incredible in that role. And so that, you know, it's that sort of thing that I want the folks that are doing this new movie to look at. You know, look at those two examples, find the, the common denominators. It's not hard. I mean, they both have, you know, the, basically the, the same thing going for them. They have a, a lot of heart. They have all the, all the elements that for, you know, 75 years have made this character what he is. Don't dismiss them. Don't marginalize them. You know, don't uh, remove those because you think that they're old-fashioned, fuddy-duddy, outdated uh, concepts and and character foibles that that need to be expunged so that you can make him hip and cool and mod. That's bullshit. You know, there, there's a reason this character has endured all those years. It's those qualities. And it goes beyond everything else. It goes beyond the powers and, and the suit and everything else. I mean, I've got my complaints with the stupid-looking suit that he's wearing in this movie, but I'm willing to forgo that if they get the character right. I'll, I'll try my best to get over my hang-ups with changing the suit. But I just it's not just that. It's not just the visual. Because I'm sure, as Paul said, I'm sure the, spe- the, you know, the special effects are going to be phenomenal. The amazing stuff that they can have Superman do in a live-action movie these days, I'm anxious for that. I want to see him throwing buildings and cars and shit around. I, I've, I've been wanting that all my life on the big screen. I want to see something on the level of, like, destroy in a Superman <laughs> movie. I think that would be awesome. I'm tired of him fighting Lex Luthor or uh, you know, Ross Webster. I want to see him battle somebody on his own power level where he can both get the shit beat out of him and he can beat the shit out of them. And you see a, lev- a city get leveled in the meantime. Yeah, All of see that. The I- promise of Superman, too. Yeah. I, yeah. Essentially, yes. And, you know, so I have no problem that Zack Snyder, who is a very visual and effects minded director, I have no, you know, no qualms that he's going to pull that off. But Superman is, there's a whole nother level there that you have to engage that character on in order to do a true interpretation. Because the best part of Superman Returns was the special effects. When he saves the plane, that movie's awesome. Uh-huh. It's everything else that sucks. I have the same fear with this movie that it's going to look great. It's going to have a hell of a lot of action. You know, it's going to get you pumped on that special effects level, but they're going to drop the ball when it comes to the guy in the suit. You know, and I'm not even talking about the actor. I'm talking about the role the actor is going to play. That's what worries me with the movie because you've got, you've got to get the character right with him. He's important. You know. And not just to me, he, he's important to the world. I mean, we have seen now over the course of, you know, especially these last few years, but it, it's been, a, it's been a, a steady decline over time that just, you know, for lack of a better term, pure icons are falling by the wayside in our society. There are so few things that you can point to anymore and say, that's good, that's right, that's you know, something I want to aspire to, or I want my kids to, you know, that's an example I can give to my kids of how to be a good person or, or, you know, just family values type of thing. There's so 
little of that remaining in the world today. And Superman's one of the last ones. And I hate what they're doing to him. I, I just I don't want to see all the stuff that makes him what he is chipped away just so that DC can f- put a few more bucks in their pocket. That That's horrible. So, yeah, I mean, it's there's so much riding on this. It's not just my love of a movie from 1978. It's my love of a character that I think is important to the world. You know, I know that might sound really maudlin, but I'm serious as a heart attack. You know, there's, there's, it's just, it's that big a deal to me. So yeah, you bet your ass I get worked up about it and that I, I worry. I really do fret. Yeah, that's it. I'll shut up about it now, but you know, I just, (laughs) I, I feel like, you know, I, I I just needed to clarify my position because I just feel like I have taken an ass kicking on Facebook about my position on both, you know, Superman in general, but this movie in particular. I, I hope it's great. I hope I am. I believe me. I don't want the movie to fail. I. It's not like I'm sitting around every day, you know hoping and praying and plotting you know how can this you know how can i derail this no i i hope it comes out and it 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 totally allays every fear that i have believe me i do i'm just not seeing it shaping up that way that's what scares me yeah believe me what little minute pleasure i would get just out of being right would be dwarfed Mm -hmm. by the pleasure i would get out of out of seeing the movie be everything it could be enjoying it Hell so yeah! I would yeah, rather be wrong. Yeah, yeah. I, I I just don't want to sit in a theater and be halfway through a Superman film and have that crushing disappointment of I'm not really digging this. So yeah, like, like with Superman, Superman Returns. Returns I, I mean, yeah. like halfway through, it was it was very sad because goddamn, I was looking forward to that film. mm Hmm. And, you know, I, I took the day off work to see it so I could see it on opening day. So I knew I, you know, the, the, you know, my, a bunch of us went and I gave out free tickets because I bought every freaking DVD release because they all had free tickets in them. And it's just like, you know, and sitting through that film. And uh, for the record, just to clarify things, too, you know, I never really thought you were saying that Superman the movie is the end-all, be-all of it. Um just, just to tell you, I, right? I, I never, I personally never got that. Uh, so I'm sorry that you were taking an ass kicking on that because I didn't, I didn't realize that you were because I really, I guess I wasn't seeing those comments. So and for what it's worth, when Superman the movie came out, I think I was 15, 16. So my actual introduction to Superman was George Reeves, and uh, I always thought he was just like the coolest Clark Kent because mm-hmm. even though he would play the weaker part. You always felt he was winking at the audience when he was doing it, and, and he never never played the buffoon, which I kind of liked. Which is why I always kind of liked the the take that Byrne and Stern and the other writers had with Clark, because they kind of had that Clark Kent in the comics. Finally, and it's nothing against. See, here's the weird thing: is that I can find something about any era of Superman and like it. Just, uh, I mean, to a small extent, I always felt Christopher Reeve was kind of winking at the audience too. Like when he did the thing with the bullet and then he passes out. I just kind of always felt that there was, you know, like, yeah, yeah, Lois, okay, you could think this, but the audience knows. Oh, yeah, because he kind of, he looks and he drops the bullet in the can and he has that little small smile to himself. That's freaking brilliant. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 
Yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of fourth wall breakage right there, I believe. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I and I love that. Like I said, with George Reeves, I always felt like he was doing that. Uh, I, I think of when he was on uh, I Love Lucy, and uh, you know he's dressed as Superman for Ricky, little Ricky's birthday party. Yeah, and they have to move the piano out of the way, and Ricky's like pulling at it and pulling at it, and he can't do it. And George Reeves just walks over like one arm and just shoves it aside. <laughs> it's like, you know, winking to the audience like he really is Superman. I love that. Well, that and uh, Mr. Ricardo, do you mean to tell me that you've been married to this woman for 15 years? And they call me Superman. <laughs> <laughs> so I think for our special Batman episode, uh, you're seeing a character that we're truly passionate about here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're passionate about this. Uh, these stories in particular. That everyone has chosen is just there's freaking gold all through this. So, well, you're uh, up, Paul. You know, it's funny that we I just just to, the last thought on that is that uh, what was it a thirty second trailer, and what did we do about forty minutes on it? <laughs> so hopefully it turns out to be a great movie. That's all I could say. So for my Batman issue for our special Batman episode, I chose the first ever appearance of Ra's al Ghul which is Batman with Robin the, two, the Teen Wonder, number 232. It's got a June 1971 cover date. It's uh, 15 cents. It's got a beautiful cover by Neil Adams. And you see Ra's al Ghul, he's drawn largest and in the center. Uh, and he's kind of drawn with, I guess, they probably zip a tone or whatever, where it's, he's not fully inked to be a dark character. He's almost like spiritual in the way he's there. Uh, and Batman and Robin are in the foreground, and Robin is being shot, and Ra's al Ghul is declaring, when I decide Robin must die, he dies. And it's a, a tale to haunt you forever, daughter of the demon. And it's I, I, yet another iconic cover. Uh, I feel like I keep coming up with, the, with issues that have those. Maybe that's what appeals to me about them. Uh, but it's just a great, great cover. Uh, the story opens up with uh, Robin climbing up a drain pipe to enter his room in a boarding house. He's away at college at the time. He starts to go into the win window and asks who's there. Apparently he hears or sees something. And you see the flashes of two muzzles and some guns and two seemingly bullets shoot him and he falls to the ground. Then we cut to the splash page, which has Bruce and Alfred... Uh, and they've received a letter uh, from a messenger, and there's an envelope with a photo of Robin laying on the ground, and it says, Dear Batman, we have Robin. Save him if you can. And at this point, Batman is staying at some sort of Gotham City penthouse, not Wayne Manor. Uh, we have the title of the episode of the issue there called Daughter of the Demon, story by Denny O'Neill and art by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano, and it's edited by Julius Schwartz. So after that, receiving that letter, Bruce suits up and swings off and goes to Wayne Manor, goes down to the Batcave. Pretty much as soon as he arrives at the Batcave, he's greeted by Ra's al Ghul and his manservant slash bodyguard, uh, Ubu. And he quickly reveals to Batman that he knows his secret identity and that he figured it out by seeing the equipment that Bruce Wayne had bought and knowing that it fit the profile for what Batman was doing. He indicates that his daughter is Talia, who Batman met a 
couple of months earlier in a uh, detective comics issue, and that she's also been abducted. And uh, Batman takes the message that was with his letter, and he analyzes it, and he finds uh, what he says is bits of an herb from an eastern cult of killers. So they leave in Ra's al Ghul's private plane, uh, but as they go to leave, Batman starts to walk off, and Ubu shoves him aside, saying that uh, the Lord goes first, and uh, Ra's al Ghul precedes him into the plane. So in the plane, Batman is sitting and concentrating, and he thinks back to about how his parents were killed and how he trained to be Batman. And then he thinks about Robin and how he took him on. And then they arrive in Calcutta, and Batman disguises himself as a beggar. He meets up with two men who try to mug him, and he quickly basically beats them senseless. He intimidates them to tell, to tell him where the Brotherhood of the Demon people are. And as they proceed, once again, Ubu shoves Batman aside, saying that Ra's al Ghul needs to go first. As they proceed, Batman is attacked by a leopard, who he takes down, and he finds a chart of the Himalayan mountains in the lair of the, uh, the demon cult. And uh, he says that he sees a scratch on it, a faint scratch at one spot, and that must be where they're going. So they start an expedition up into the Himalayan mountains. And uh, Batman's got a fur parka over his bat costume, which I always thought the bat costume was insulated in a way that he wouldn't need that. But what? there's insulated, and then there's you know the the freezing cold. So. Yeah, I, I guess so. So they're in the mountains, and he finds a trail, and they start to ascend the mountain. And uh, they're attacked by some men with guns, and Batman distracts them by throwing the parka. So it turned out to be useful for more things than just keeping himself warm. And uh, while they're distracted, he swings around, gets to the solid ground, and then takes the two gunmen out. He, he basically then, it, it's as if he has an epiphany at that point. He goes to an entrance into the cave. He sees these two armed men guarding it. And rather than taking them out or anything, he just kind of shoves them aside and says he knows they're not going to shoot him, and he walks in. And when he arrives inside, Batman, uh, Robin is sitting on a bench tied up. And there are one, two, three, four, five men standing there addressing him. And he's basically, again, saying that he knows that something's not right here. And he's ign he ignores them and just goes over and starts to untie Robin. They say that uh, the Supreme Brother enters and is a big man wearing a boat mask. And once again, that man dismisses it, saying that he's not going to kneel. He's not going to show him the respect that they're asking for. And that he has no patience left. And he basically tells the whole story that, that he, he's known all along that, that Ra's al Ghul was basically treating him as a, as a chump in trying to get to fool him into doing all of this. And that which, uh, the identical disappearance of his daughter wouldn't have fooled a moron, he said. Then uh, he basically asks Robin if he's ready. Robin says yes, and he's untied, and the two of them just beat up all the individual gunmen. And then he rips the mask off the... Uh, the, the head guy who turns out to be Ubu and then he gets into a battle with Ubu and basically takes him out saying that he's not nearly as tough as he looks and that he just intimidates people with his size he then uh, confronts Ra's al Ghul who's there with Talia and 
he asks him why this all went on, and basically Ra's al Ghul says that Talia is in love with him and that he needed to find out that Batman was a worthy successor to him, worthy to be his son-in-law, and that's why he did this whole thing. And then it ends with the statement, who knows exactly what Ra's al Ghul and his lovely Talia are planning next? Certainly not the Batman. More to come soon. And that's the end of the issue. And they all go out for ice cream. Yeah, I think they do. I think that's a big thing in the Himalayas. <laughs> yeah, they have a surplus. <laughs> but uh, I, I, the biggest thing to me in this is the artwork. It's Neil Adams. Oh, yeah. And I, oh, God, yes. I don't think I've mentioned enough that Neil Adams is just like the most awesome artist like almost ever. Uh, it's just everything about it is great. Uh, one thing that, that like just jumped out at me in this reading that I hadn't noticed in the past, in the scene where they're sitting in the plane and Batman is just kind of looking down, contemplating, it really looks a lot to me like the John Byrne Batman. Yes, I had the same, uh, the same note, yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that, especially in the face and the shadowing. Yeah, of and the, I wonder uh, if a lot this of the blacks in it. I wonder if it inspired Byrne in his rendition. I, I think I, Byrne no, was inspired by Neil Adams yes. in general. Yeah, when uh, when Byrne was first uh, first starting out, he was often um, it was often either commented or, uh, upon, or sometimes he was outright accused of uh, of you know just aping or stealing. You know, it, it depended on whether the the person was kind of enamored of burn or you know not whether they you know how they worded the articles but yeah it's quite a few times i saw him compared to adams but i think he uh freely admits that adams was one of his major influences as an artist i'm yeah, sorry I mike mean, i didn't mean to cut no that was i was basically about to say the same thing so <laughs> and i mean over, over time their styles are very very different but there's certain, I guess, standard qualities that they both uh, exhibit that, that do match each other very, very well. Uh, Byrne certainly has, you know, his own style where you wouldn't, you wouldn't mistake it for Neil Adams uh, and, and is great in his own right. Uh, did you see the, the full page when they first get to the Himalayas? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious what you think when they show on the mountainside there it looks like there's a face pretty clearly in the mountain mm-hmm. and i'm not sure exactly what that's supposed to be or why that's there i don't know who it's supposed to be but it reminds me an awful lot of dead man by yeah Adams. and they're in the himalayas and isn't isn't like uh nanda parbat nanda parbat yeah like, uh, which, which always sounds like, you know, some kind of, like, freaking Muppet character. Nanda Parbat. Um, but, yeah, I I, th- I just think that uh, it was Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, <laughs> it, it looks like Mount Rushmore. Ah, uh, Ra's I, Ghul is the man in Lincoln's nose. Okay, it all makes sense now. Oh, okay. I, I think yeah. the, the story as written uh, is it's very well written if you allow for the dialogue of 1971 comics. If you, if you read the way some of the things are written, especially some of the dialogue that Batman gives, uh, I'm just trying to look for, there was a, a particular line that, that just stood out to me at the time, and I should have made a note. But uh, he, he speaks very formally. 
in some points where it just doesn't oh. seem natural. It's during the sequence where he's confronting the, uh, the, he goes, he's in Calcutta and he disguises himself as a beggar of alms and he's accosted by those two toughs and he beats the crap out of them and then basically intimidates one into giving him the information that he wanted. I interpreted this as Batman was speaking um what would it be hindi i guess or wh- whatever their language is that he's speaking their language and that's why the dialogue seems a little more formal and maybe even a little more stilted than his regular um speech yeah mm. i would have information of you where lurks the brotherhood of the demon that, uh, yeah yeah exactly but maybe that's that's a fair explanation for it i mean denny o'neill i think was an excellent writer in his day but he did have a tendency to be a little heavy-handed uh, when you think about like the Green Lantern, Green Arrow run, right? Uh, you know, just just the the uh, messages about society and, and things that were in there. I mean, like I said, he tended to be a little heavy-handed, but other than that, I, I you know, he's done some some just great, great work, especially with Neil Adams. All right, well, I mean, actually, on that at that point, I don't have a lot of notes on this one. Uh, I just thought it was a really good story. It introduced a character that's become tremendous through the years, especially when they used him in the uh, the Batman movie. Uh, one thing is, when I think of Ra's al Ghul, though, I do think of David Warner as the David yeah, Warner, I was, yes. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. I don't think of Liam Neeson. It, it, David Warner's is the voice I hear when I read Ra's al Ghul in the comics. Yes, most definitely. Most definitely. As a matter of fact, I, I, uh, I'd be willing to go out on a limb and say I would probably love Batman Begins. Absolutely love it if uh, Warner had played Ra's al Ghul in that movie. I, would I think you be that too I, old for that now. No, hell no. Not, no. not Ra's al Ghul. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I mean, he is an older man, so I don't know how old David Warner is now. He's got to be in his seventies, easy. But he's got. Uh, presence and stat. Yeah. Now I, I know a lot of people say the same thing about uh, about um, old block of wood there, um, Liam Neeson. But serious, I mean, come on, he's he's a he's a classically trained uh, Shakespearean British actor. He's played, you know, all these great movie villains. You know, he played Ra's al Ghul and was perfect as him you know and granted that was an animated thing but i'm i have no doubt that he could have you know, made the transition to live action with that character no problem i i considered it almost a crime that that he wasn't you know the character i have one thing to say um christopher lee in episode two mm. yeah mm-hmm. i mean yeah flat out they can put his face on an actor's body for the physical, yeah. because really and truly in this story, Ra's al Ghul doesn't do a whole lot; just stands there and talks. But well, we the, were talking about doing it in the Batman Begins movie, though, where he did have action scenes. But, but my point is, is that even if you were going to do something physical, um, Liam Neeson really thinking of those scenes. At one point, he was wearing a mask. When he disguised himself and was attacking Bruce and all that, and they were fighting, you could easily have the close-up shots and then digitally 
put his face on another actor for the action sequences and have it work. But if you're going to adapt this, which I think would have been a better way to go about Rachel Ghoul yeah. uh, in movie form, you know, he's just he's just kind of standing there. You know, he talks and, you know, yeah, later on you have like that epic sword fight in the desert where they're both bare-chested and manly. Um, but again, I mean, it's just, you know, right here you just need atmosphere. And Warner still has those chops. Absolutely. Absolutely. I really, yeah, I, I firmly believe that. Um, did you have any notes on this one, Mike? Oh, I had a few. Um, love this cover. Uh, yeah. I've loved this cover since I saw it in Batman from the 30s to the 70s mm-hmm. uh, for the first time. I have gone on record that Jim Aparo is my favorite Batman artist. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the way that man draws Batman. That does not mean that I can't look at Neil Adams and go, holy crap, I don't think that costume has ever looked better. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adams has a way of drawing superhero costumes, and Aparo had this too. But 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 you know we're, we're talking about Adams uh, that made them look real. It was mm-hmm. kind of like George Perez, uh, where where he makes the cloth and everything look like it should hang that way. And throughout this entire issue, I just had to kind of stop every once in a while and just be like, "Holy crap! Look at the look how he designed that page." I mean, the origin sequence. Um, which was, I think, one of the first times the origin was done in this era, or retold like this. Uh, he does something that I don't think any other artist did in this era, is when he shows Batman in the past, there isn't a yellow oval around his chest. Right. And it looks really wonky, because I don't think... I don't think artists of this era got that you could just make that bat freaking huge, and it would look a lot better that way. <laughs> Um, cause it looks really weird to have that tiny little bat, uh, you know, on, on the chest, but still looking at that and him aping the Bob Kane, uh, image from, uh, the, I, I, it's either the origin. He, he did that pose several times. So there, there's a couple different issues you can point to and, you know, going with the, you know, the origin of, um, of Robin and seeing the Graysons fall. I mean, just the artistic choices he makes throughout this entire issue. My favorite, outside of just, you know, seeing the introduction of Rachel Ghoul, my favorite part is that all throughout the issue, he's like... He's given the one, two, three to Ubu. Like, okay... You know, he lets him right. push him aside once. He lets him push him aside again because he knows, end of the day, he can take this guy. And he freaking flattens him. And yeah. what does he say? After you, Ubu. And it's just like, yes! That was just like a good old-fashioned fisticuff scene. And just, no one really did action in, in the Bronze Age like Adams did. Uh, just the sheer, like, it looks cinematic. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very exaggerated, but you need that for this medium. So, the, I mean, just just everything about this issue is beautiful. The only problem I have is it just freaking ends with her kissing Batman on the cheek, and there's not really a to be continued either. And the and the next issue was that they did together All was reprints. not Razel Ghul. Yeah, yeah, so it, it's it, you know it, it, it's a great story. It introduces. Um, 
one of the few villains from the Bronze Age to really survive to this day. Uh, and and just just the way it begins, and and I can't imagine what it would be like as a reader in nineteen what seventy one seventy one when this came out when you don't know who Rachel Ghoul is. See, I I knew who he was going into this story, and I knew especially watching the animated series where they did a fairly faithful adaptation uh, of this, making some changes here and there, but I think it still worked. Um, that, you know, he, he's had such a great run as a villain, mainly because his viewpoint is so, I won't say relatable, because I hate it when people say stuff like that, but he's just like, the world's, the world's fractured and I'm going to fix it. And Batman's like, no you're not, I'm going to stop you. And we don't really get that here, because here he's just, you know, testing Batman out. But still, it's just it's just a beautiful issue. It really is. Uh, I you know I um I even like the weird world of Aurora ad. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's in the middle of it. So just uh, just a beautiful book. Great. And in, in the uh, in the letters page, uh, the first letter is from Mike Barr. Yep. Ha! I didn't see that, but awesome. Yep. Absolutely. I don't know when he started writing. I know within ten years he would be writing on the title. Mm-hmm. It's something I was oh, looking. Go. I just looked it up. His debut as a comics professional was in Detective Comics four forty four, December nineteen seventy four. That's that's the issue I was actually looking at because that's the uh, first issue that had the the Bat Murderer story in it. So yeah, you know, which I scored for two dollars last year. That's crazy. It's really nice condition. Oh, you have that one, four forty-four. Mm-hmm. Well, this uh, this covers the one I call the uh, "Well, alrighty then" cover. I like that. You know, when Ro- when I decide Robin must die, he dies, and we see him getting shot on the cover, and I just have to say, "Well, alrighty then." <laughs> well, they never really explained. You know, I guess you know it was uh, tranquilizer dots that he gets shot with in the beginning, but they never yeah. actually say. They're squirt guns. Well, I always got a kick out of, you know, the, the box there at the beginning describes, you know, what Robin's doing, climbing up the pipe and all that. And it says, he shinnies up a, uh, swiftly up a drain pipe. I always thought it was shimmy with an M. Is it, sh- is it really shinny? Is that a word? You got me. I yeah, you know. got me. I don't know. <laughs> uh, let's see. Page three. You know what's wrong with this page? Nothing. Not a blessed thing. It's <laughs> awesome. Nice. This page is awesome. I love panel two. I loved. I've always loved the way Adams shows Batman swinging. I love that. You know, as cool as the grapple gun is, I miss the days when when Batman would just throw his batarang that had the rope attached to it and swing about the city rather than you know having his little you know, poofy gun to, to shoot everywhere. I mean, that's, I, I do like that. I think it's really cool. And I loved the sound effect that they eventually went with on the animated series. I, I love that sound, but I like this. I, I love the old seventies Batman swinging around the city, especially by, uh, by Adams. It's just great. 
Especially and that, with the disco music in the background. Oh my god, that's <laughs> awesome! And I love the third panel. I just love uh, this shot of of Batman, and he's saying, you know, his ancestral home, which I thought was kind of a weird way to describe Wayne Manor, but it's still really great. Um, page four. I love how uh, Ra's al Ghul uh, describes himself. As he, he says, I am presently known as Ra's al Ghul. And I don't, was that ever elaborated on that he would go by different identities or something? I don't remember that ever being used. I couldn't point you to it, but I'm pretty sure it was that, uh, you know, over the years he's had different identities. Oh, uh, okay. And I like that he's a bit of a craniac in this first story, too. He's, he's a little bit leader-like. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a weird, almost like a like a Neanderthal head or something. He's kind of funny. You know, it's, it's, it's just his cranium looks kind of funny. Um, page flipping way ahead here. I love the origin. I was trying to remember if this might be the first time I ever saw the origin. It, it, it very very likely is. I, I don't know that for sure, but it's very very possible that that this was my introduction to the actual origin. Of Batman and and really you know set the tone of of how I like to see it handled. I love this. I think it's beautiful. I think I, this is actually my favorite part of the whole issue is uh, the retelling of Batman's origin. It's just phenomenal. And on uh, on page seven, uh, that fourth panel down. Um, years later, did, have you either of you guys ever seen? There was a book. I forget what the publisher was of it. It was called Monolith. It was basically it was after Adams yeah, had left was, the um, big two. Hmm. Monolith. No, I mm-hmm. was thinking. I was thinking of something else. Never mind. Ignore me. As you well, after <laughs> after he split off from from the big two and was working, I think he kind of basically formed that company. I just can't remember what the name of the of the continuity. Continuity. That was it. Um, he was doing a title called Monolith, which was kind of like a. It was kind of like a weird cross between like a Batman and Superman character. He looked a lot like Superman, but he had sort of more of a Batman type of origin. And it would show a lot of shots of him doing this sort of thing, you know, with working out and lifting giant weights and stuff like that. So I see that panel right there, and it takes me back to Monolith, which, of course, is years later. It's probably, you know, it's a good 10 or 15 years after this. But I can't help but feel that Monolith was kind of, you know, an homage to to stuff like this. You know, these great shots of Batman working out and stuff. I love that. Um, I was also noticing, now I'm looking at this in two ways. I'm actually looking at um, a digital copy of the comics. I actually, sadly, I don't have an actual paper copy of uh, Batman 232. So I'm looking at that digitally and comparing it with the way that I've always enjoyed this story, which is uh, I actually have a copy um, of, uh, let me see, this dates back to what, 1977, uh, limited collector's edition, C-51. And it's a giant book. You know, it's in that great, you know, oversized format. Beautiful wraparound cover by uh, by Neil Adams of uh, Ra's al uh, kind of, you know, he's in the background being all sinister with like clawed hands, all Darth Vader style behind Batman. And Batman's, you know, he's kneeling down and he's balling up his fist and he's screaming because Robin's uh, looking dead, you know, just laying dead on the cover. It's great. Beautiful cover on this. But I just love this in the oversized format. It, it just is gorgeous. 
But on the origin page, I noticed, you know, you were talking about the oval or the lack of the oval during the um, the origin sequence. In this reprinting, it's really weird because on the uh, the sixth panel down on page seven, they didn't draw a circle around it, but the coloring does put a yellow oval around the bat on Batman's chest right there. But it's it's very odd because you can tell that it's added in post because, like I say, there's not an actual oval there. There's just like a yellow, almost like a smear on his chest. And then the panel, the very last panel of that page where it's young Dick Grayson turning to look at Batman, the open spot right there where Batman's got the cape in front of his chest, just that open spot in the original book, it's just the gray ovalless bat symbol on his chest in this uh, limited collector's edition. They colored it yellow instead of, uh, instead of gray. So it's like a giant oval on his chest. It's really weird that they did that. I'm not sure why they would have recolored it. And uh, let's see. Looking at, okay, that one actually should have the oval on it. Yeah, I was looking at the panel on the next page, but that's he's in flashback there. But, yeah, it's just really strange that they did that. Oh, let's see. Uh, now, I get a kick out of Batman wearing clothes over his Bat costume, especially yeah, when, it was, when it was either Neil Adams or, uh, or Jim Aparo. I don't know why, but I, that looks really, really cool. Strange that we've never seen an action figure of, uh, of Batman with a parka. There's been like a million uh, Batman action figures, but I don't think we've ever seen one like this. That'd be actually kind of cool. He's almost like a G.I. Joe figure or something, you know, <laughs> where he's got different uniforms. Um, um, page 13, panel 2, Ra's al Ghul stands on a cliff talking to the monitor. That's pretty cool. Uh, let's see. I don't know what it is, but that last panel on page 13, I love the way Batman looks right there as he's pulling himself up the edge of the cliff. There's just something about that crouched, determined look on his face that's really, really cool. Page 14, panel 3. This is how it would look, kids, if Clint Eastwood ever played Batman back in the day. I <laughs> love that panel. Does, does that not look like Clint wearing a bat mask? Yes, I think it's great. I think that's really cool. And flipping way ahead again, we got, oh yeah, last panel, page 21, Batman and Robin. And I just love the way Batman's like pointing at us, the reader. It's just great. It looks like a public service announcement, like those ads that the Adams would do with Superman, like getting the kids to clean up the clubhouse or something like that. But it's just beautiful. I love the art in this panel. And I think that's pretty much it for the issue proper. Um you know, as you said, Paul, you know, the next issue does not resolve this at all. The next the very next issue after this was an all reprint issue, and it wasn't for something like what, like nine or ten issues before they picked this story back up again. Yeah, the next this issue book with, here. Uh, hmm? The next issue with uh, Adams and O'Neill was uh Two Fate. Right. I think it was two thirty four right. or two thirty five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this story so, but, but I, this, I like that too. I like I like the you know giving you the hint of the mystery and, and stepping away you know it, it doesn't all have to be resolved in you know two months and it's not the current you know uh, 
compressed storytelling. It's just giving you, you know, a, a, a rich story, but then stepping away and saying still some mysteries to be solved. Right. Now, does does the original issues of this storyline do they go for a lot of money? I always had the feeling that they were probably expensive, but I don't know that for sure. Do you? In my experience, any Neil Adams, Batman, X Men, Avengers, Green uh, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, they all go for a lot of money. Because mm. I would encourage yeah. folks. I, now I don't know how much this this might be expensive too. For all I know, but I would encourage folks that if if you ever want to read this stuff in a really nice presentation, track down uh, limited collector's edition C fifty one. That's the way I have it because it has all four issues of the story. You've got this story, Batman 232, but then it picks up and it's in Batman 242, 243, and 244. This reprints all of those. And then in the very back, it gives a color uh, cover gallery showing the covers to all four issues, and they're really awesome. And then... I just consider this a little bit of a bonus. I know it's just advertising, but, you know, classic ads. I love classic ads. And you've got that really great classic ad for Superman versus Wonder Woman where it's uh, it's showing it like it's a secret, like, government dossier or something, you know, with, like, black and white photos of them fighting each other. And then you flip the page. It's another ad, this one for Superman versus Muhammad Ali. <laughs> just a great, great image. And then the inside back cover actually has uh, bios. You got a bio for Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, Irv Novick, uh, Dick, uh, Dick Giordano, and uh, Julie Swartz. And uh, just great stuff. This, I love the presentation in this book. It's really, really nice. But that's all I got on that. All righty. Scott, you're up next. Oh, I'm up next, aren't I? Okay. Well, my choice for an awesome bat story. This uh, this one's going way back for me. Um, I was tempted to go with the issue before this because that is literally the oldest comic I can ever remember reading, which was Batman 445. But uh, at some point, I'd like to do the entire bat murderer story as some sort of special or something, some coverage at some point. So instead, I, I, I chose the very next issue, which I also think is a fantastic issue, uh, Detective Comics 446, because while it is part of the Bat Murderer story, it's also a great little standalone tale, so you can take it either way. This is the uh, April 1974 issue. It was on the stands in January, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Original cover price was $0.25, cents and... Beautiful, beautiful cover on it by uh, by Jim Aparo, and it shows this uh, bat Batman statue falling to the ground and dashing to pieces, and there's a skeleton inside of it as Batman kind of lurks in the foreground, and he's uh, peeking around a corner. Just a classic Aparo Batman. It's great. I love it. And uh, the cover copy just says, A Bone Chiller, Slaughter in Silver. It's written by uh, Len Wein, art by Jim Aparo. Julie Swartz was the editor. Those are the only credits on this. They were much simpler times with the credits. And uh, it lets us know that the dramatic events depicted in this story, one of a series appearing exclusively in this magazine, actually occur after the Batman stories currently running in other DC magazines. <laughs> 
And, of course, like I said, this uh, uh, issue is uh, entitled Slaughter in Silver. And the story opens with Commissioner Gordon visiting his pal and head of the Get Batman to Turn Himself In committee, Bruce Wayne. And uh, they're at one of Wayne's warehouses in Gotham's east side. The Batman is wanted for cold-bloodedly killing both Talia and Ra's al Ghul. And the hunt is on for the bat murderer. So while Wayne and Gordon are talking, this worker guy is nearby and he uh, he's lifting this uh, this giant Batman statue. He's using like a rope and pulley system and he loses his grip on it and it falls. And just like on the cover, it, it, it hits the ground and it smashes into pieces, revealing a, a gruesome prize inside a human skeleton. Later in the Wayne penthouse. Now this was during the time when, uh, when Wayne had abandoned Wayne Manor and moved into Gotham city proper. And he had that swanky seventies penthouse, which I always loved. I always wanted there to be like, like the Barbie penthouse, but a Wayne, actually I think they did create one of those. Yeah, they, did did Amigo it. have one? Yeah, they did. I never had one, but maybe that's why I always wanted them to make one. Cause I wanted one, but yeah, uh, years later I would find out that they actually did do that. I just never, I never saw it anywhere. We'll, we'll, we'll have to put that on your Christmas list next yeah. to the official Disneyland monorail playset that I saw <laughs> on Pawn Stars last oh, week. Awesome. <laughs> so Wayne, uh, he suits up as the Batman while a nervous, or I, I at least I interpret him to be nervous because I'm getting the feeling from this story that, that Alfred may be getting to question his, uh, his master's uh, innocence, maybe even his sanity. There's not really anything specific in this story to give you that impression, but I just I interpret that from the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful apparel artwork that uh, I think Alfred's actually a little bit afraid of Batman in this panel. But again, it, it's just my personal interpretation. But anyway, while a nervous Alfred reports no success in proving that the firearm that killed Roz was any kind of a trick gun. Stymied by this case, Batman nonetheless sets out to have a closer look at the skeleton that they found earlier. Alfred asks if that's such a wise idea, what with the police scouring the city for him. But Batman recounts his sworn oath to the ghosts of his slain parents and vows to continue his mission, even if it costs him his life. So later, disguised as an old custodian... Batman tries to sneak a peek at the bones, but is intercepted by three toughs who put up a fight, intent on taking the body and not leaving any witnesses. Police, drawn by the gunfire, arrive on the scene, and a panicky Batman douses the lights and escapes under cover of darkness. But then, so do the toughs, and incidentally, uh, they're pursued by the caped crusader to their boss, a guy named Sterling Silversmith who is the nutty, flamboyant villain of the piece intent on, I don't know, ruling the world through silver or some shit. It's not actually important. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't quite get what his whole deal was. But what I like about him is, you know, he, he's, he looks cool. He's kind of, a, you know, the, the classic, you know, Bond villain thing going. But he is also probably the smartest Batman villain I've seen in quite some time because... When he actually manages to clobber the Dark Knight and then ties him up, he goes for the obvious solution. Put a bullet in his head. 
I like that. I really like the confrontation part in this where he basically says, you know what? No death traps for you. No testing your ingenuity. I'm just going to shoot you in the head. But when he tries to do it, Batman, you know, pulls just about the ballsiest move you can think of. You know, when faced with a point blank headshot, he headbutts the barrel of the pistol, jamming it and giving himself enough leverage to actually flip over backwards and shatter the chair that he's tied to. So now that he's free, Batman beats the piss out of the henchman. He takes down Silversmith in one of the most ironic ways that would be available for this particular story. And he leaves things all neat and tidy for the police, who arrive just incredibly swift every time they're called in this story. So swiftly, in fact, that one of them actually manages to corner the wanted crime fighter at gunpoint. Caught dead to rights, Batman stares down the policeman before finally dropping out the window to fight another day. The cop's partner is stunned and says, in heaven's name, Kelly, you had the Batman dead in your sights. Why didn't you shoot? And the guy says, I tried to, Harris. Honest to God, I tried. But I got to look at his face, and I just couldn't pull the trigger. Could you? And that's the end of this particular chapter. And as I said, I like this because it is part of the larger Bat Murderer story, but it's also a great little standalone tale. And in a lot of ways, illustrates everything I like about Batman. You know, he gets to use his detective skills. He gets to fight a big over-the-top villain. Or in this case, maybe a small over-the-top villain, but an over-the-top villain nonetheless. He gets caught in a death trap that's not really a death trap at all. The guy's not going to do the typical Bond villain thing. He's just going to shoot him. And I like that even faced with that, because I've heard that be a common criticism of Batman stories, that why don't they just shoot him? Well, that's exactly what this guy's going to do. And Len Wein perfectly illustrates that even faced with that, Batman can think his way out of the situation. I love that. I think that's very, very clever. And I wonder how many people actually would read this story and actually catch that that's exactly what Wayne is, is giving us here. He's giving us the answer to that question. You know, well, why don't they just shoot him? Well, this guy tries. This guy's got him point blank, and Batman still manages to escape. I think that's great. I, I, I'm just blown away by that. The art is I, I don't have words for the art in this. I This is Batman to me in every way. Now, granted, th- this is very likely the, the second comic I ever read as a kid of, you know, all of, what, seven years old? And not even seven. You know, I wouldn't turn seven until April of that year. So, you know, six years old. I'm sure that this greatly informed my my opinion of uh, of batman but i just i look at this and this is just like yep that's that's my batman right there um a couple quick specific notes i really didn't take a lot of them because i i could just gush all day about this particular issue but a, a couple of quick ones um page three very first panel kind of threw me when i was first rereading this because that little bubble that's just to the left of batman is the same color as the word bubble And so here's what it says. It says, evening, the Midtown penthouse apartment of millionaire uh, philanthropist Bruce Wayne. I thought he was dictating or something. I didn't quite get it first that that was a caption bubble. I thought it was a word bubble. It's really weird that it's like right next to his head, the shape of a word bubble and the same color. So it kind of throws you. I wonder 
when they reprint this story, if they color correct that or not, I don't know. I don't have any reprints of it, I don't think. Um, page three, uh, last panel, one of my all-time favorite Batman shots. He's leaping off the top of Wayne Tower as the sun... I guess the sun's supposed to be setting, but it is kind of high in the sky for it to be setting. But still, he's leaping off the tower, and the, the, just the way the coloring and the shadowing is there, it, it's great. Leaping that, off and That was and one of my notes away. on this one, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I mean, that looks like it, it could be taken off and, and become like promo art or, or poster art or something. It's just gorgeous. Um. Page four, third panel, Batman references the shadow, which I think he'd met a couple of times by yeah, this point. Yeah, it, it was a couple issues before this because he's just like, I, I have him to thank. Uh, I guess that's another one I owe him. That The, the shadow team-up uh, is an amazing story. I really like that one. You know what? The shadow's in the the... The wall, or, or I'm not sure how to describe this. It's like Batman's thinking yeah. about. Yeah, I didn't even catch that until just now. But yeah, the Batman, or I mean, the, excuse me, the Shadow is like in in like thoughts on the wall or something. I, that's really cool. I like that. Um, again, um, let me flip to the specific page. Page ten. Yeah, page 10, third panel. Um, he's uh, Silversmith is pointing the gun right between Batman's eyes. And Batman is, he actually looks scary right here. He's just got this determined look on his face like, you know, go, go ahead and kill me. You know, he's just, he, he's got that great look of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you. You think you've got me, but I'm going to get you. Even if you pull that trigger, I'm still going to come get you. I just love that look. And, uh, you know, it's like Paul said before, I can definitely see some John Byrne in there, uh, especially that panel right there, because when Byrne illustrates Batman, often it's colored very sim- and shadowed very similar to the way it's, uh, it's colored and shadowed here. But Silversmith says, goodbye, Batman. No outlandish, uh, no outlandish doom trap for you to test your ingenuity upon this time. Just a plain and simple bullet between the eyes. God, I love that. I love that. I just think it's great. Um, that's it, really, for specific notes about this particular story. Just a, a couple quick general notes. Um, as awesome as the setup to this story is, and even the resolution is, it, you know, taken as a whole, Batman four. What is it? Four forty four through four forty eight. One of my all-time favorite Batman stories, um, mostly because this is when I discovered the character was with the Bat Murderer story. Um, great setup, beautiful art in the first couple of issues. Unfortunately, the the last two issues, the the resolution to the story, illustrated by Ernie Chan, and not the biggest Ernie Chan fan in the world. Not bad, just he ain't no Jim Apero. Um, and lastly, just because I feel really. Uh, that I owe it to the guy. I got to give a, a, a shout out here to my buddy, uh, Luke Giaconetti, because, you know, Mike and I have both, and, and mostly me, more, me, me more than Mike, but uh, we have both kind of had our fun and poked our fun and, and, and everything with Hawkman. But I'll tell you, I have a little bit of personal history, just a tiny little bit of personal history with Hawkman, because I remembered 
certain stories when I became a comic collector that I had when I was a kid. And I had no idea where the hell they were, you know, what books they were in. And I could remember an old Hawkman story where Hawkman um, was on a swing set. And, you know, how do you look something like that up? You know, it's not like you can go to, you know, you know. then when I was looking for it, I don't think Wikipedia, I don't think the Internet even existed. But even today, I mean, where would you, you know, I don't know that a, an Internet search Hawkman on a swing set would turn up anything. But I just had this image in my head of a story where Hawkman was on a swing set. It was just something I remembered from when I was a kid. And when I finally tracked down the copy of this book that I own today, I can't tell you how thrilled I was to find this story in here. It's a, it's a Hawkman backup feature uh, written by E. Nelson Bridwell, art by uh, Rich Buck and Klaus Jansen. The Mystery of the Flyaway Car. It's a, it's a goofy little tale. It's just a Hawkman. It's a short little Hawkman thing. But this is that one. And again, this was, I'm sure this was my introduction to Hawkman, you know, how his wings worked and the nth metal and all that. But he beats the crap out of a guy at a playground. And it just threw me. I mean, I love tracking down stuff like this. It was a similar thing happened the issue before this with Detective uh, 445. That's the issue where uh, there was this great um, elongated man illustrated by Carmine Infantino and the only thing I could remember about this story was that the elongated man stretched his ear and he stretched it down a chimney and he listened in on some bad guys laying plans and I could just remember that image in my head from when I was a kid reading comics and when I found that issue it just thrilled me no end because it was just an image that I, I kind of vaguely recall like a like a dream you wake up from you know and it's just great to track down stuff like i love it but uh yeah what what did you guys think of this story did you did you get a kick out of it or what definitely oh loved it it. sterling silversmith no longer just a who's who entry to me Um, (laughs) and i mean that only half jokingly because you know a lot of characters that i know who they are i only know who they are because of, you know, diligently reading Who's Who when I finally discovered the series. Right. You know, seeing this story, which is just... I said before, Jim Aparo is my favorite Batman artist ever. Mm-hmm. Just hands down. And uh, I'm, I have managed to track down for a pretty decent price. Uh, there's like one issue I'm missing. You know, the, the Bruce Wayne, or the Batman murderer storyline. Um... So getting to read this, because I haven't read that yet, because I was waiting to get the whole thing, because I'm that kind of obsessive fan, you know, getting to read this kind of kind of out of order is fantastic. Also, it was nice to read it because they did a really solid look at Lynn Ween's run with Batman and the Batcave Companion that Two Morrows put out. Mm-hmm. So it... So many times I'll read about a story and not read the actual story. If that makes any sense, right? Like you're, you're reading a history of something, and it says in this issue this happened, in that issue that happened, and here it was just nice to actually put a name to a face, basically, uh, where you know I get to see how it all plays out, and it's just such classic Bronze Age Batman. Everything that was good about the character in this era is in this issue. He's you know he's smart, 
he, you know, like you said, he's got the the toughness of the I'm gonna get you. You you may not see it coming, but you know, Batman's gonna get you. And I do love the fact that, you know, like you said, finally someone's just like, I'm just gonna shoot you. And uh that's it. So let's kill you then. Yep. <laughs> and that and, and I have to say that the whole thing really the the part of the issue that hit me the most is that last panel where ostensibly it's two you know Gotham City cops sitting there talking about why they didn't shoot Batman even though they have orders to kill and I'm sorry cops don't bring villains in dead or alive you know you don't bring a perp in dead it's just, it's just not how the cops operate <laughs> but I love the fact that the last panel is the cop looking at me with the gun out going, could you? Right. He's not asking his partner, he's asking me. Or he's asking you, or he's asking Paul. Yeah, And that is just a great artistic touch to the end of this story. Just a fantastic issue. Yeah, I I really enjoyed this also. And I had never read this, and I never read the the whole storyline that you're talking about, so now I'm going to uh, have to get it all and, and check it out. A uh, couple of notes I had on it. Uh, the cover, I agree with you. I really like the cover art. I do not like this time in comics when they would let the logo for the book take up a third of the cover. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really, you know, the, it, it really interfered with the ability to have a cover like this have as much effect as it should. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if if they had made a full-page picture and then figured out a way to work in the Detective Comics logo some other way, it, it would have been better. And it's really good even with that. Uh, I'm in total agreement with you guys. As much as I'm a Neil Adams fan, Jim Aparo is the Batman artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it probably has to do with he was our entry, entry Batman guy for all three of us. Uh, that and the fact that he's also also was a great artist. Uh, I had made the note on, on the same panel you did on page three. The panel before that I, I thought was interesting, like the uh, the portrait of his parents he's looking at. Just because the style of the portrait just screams 1970s to me. Well, plus Martha Wayne looks like uh, Senorita, too. Doesn't she? She, uh, she, she looks look, looks a little like Talia al Ghul. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah you're right. It does. Though. It, it, it it's almost looks like he's he's looking like at a poster from like uh, like a Zorro movie or something because they they do they they look they look vaguely Spanish to me. I don't know why. That's just something about the art style there. Uh, the villain was incredibly silly, but well played. Just the same. He's got and a little Duke of Oil in him too. <laughs> he's just you know. The hell I mean, you say? <laughs> Sorry. He's, Duke he's of just, Oil, really? From from the Outsiders, remember Duke I, of Oil? I know. I'm trying. I've been trying to forget. <laughs> uh, I, I, I I love the whole point that you that you've gone over so many times with him. Just wanted to shoot him in the head, mm-hmm. uh, and and like Mike said that that closing shot of the cop is just it's almost haunting the way they made. Yeah, it. it's it's great. And then after that, but before the Hawkman story, just uh, kind of going back, revisiting one of my uh, themes from last week, the next page, uh, first ad is big income, career in accounting. <laughs> and the second is 
fast track to a cool job, train at home to be a motorcycle mechanic. I'm sure you could learn everything you need to repair a motorcycle with a correspondence course. There's no need for any hands-on work there. As, as I said many a time when Scott and I were discussing ads on Tales of the JSA, get a job, hippie. <laughs> and not to go into de- in depth on it, but there is a this Twinkie ad. Oh, there is. I love this one, too. That's uh, Dick Giordano, isn't it? Mm, I believe so. Oh, this Looks is like awesome. It. What do you say? We, should we act it out? Batman and the Mummy. Who would you like to be? <laughs> I'll be the Mummy. I'll be Batman. Alright, I'll be Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Mummy has captured the professor and his beautiful daughter. Great Cheops! <laughs> they violated the tomb of his ancestors, and he wants revenge. I'll roll this two-ton stone. They'll never get out alive. Even my special mummy ray gun won't stop him. Well, after all, you can't kill a mummy. Right. He's already dead. What'll we do? We've got a secret weapon. I've got it. What is it? We've got to act fast. <laughs> I totally <laughs> misread that line. I suck at this. Uh, we'll lure him. <laughs> we'll lure him away with an offer he can't resist. Seems I've heard that be- somewhere before. <laughs> What's that? Mmm, <laughs> delicious hostess Twinkies. I can't resist that moist sponge cake and creamy filling. Here he comes! Mmm, I've been around for 2,000 years and I've never tasted anything so good. <laughs> Now's our chance to escape. Let's go. Gee, thanks, Batman and Robin. For those delicious hostess Twinkies! Mmm! So my question about this ad is very simple. <laughs> Dude, when did Commissioner Gordon get the hot blonde? <laughs> They need do- they need to go tell you know he actually looks a lot like Alfred from the from the television series to me, <laughs> doesn't he? What was, his, what was his name? Alan Napier, I believe his name. Was. Holy yeah. cow, man! Whoa, nice pull, nice pull. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's my one and only trick. So I you know I try to do it well. <laughs> this is a I, very, I always wondered uh, if that's where uh, they came up with the name Jack Napier for the Joker in. Uh, yeah, the Tim Burton movie. Yeah, this is a very underrated crossover with uh, supernatural thrillers. I must say, that does look a lot like the same mummy that Marvel would use in that book. Yeah, you never know. He's got a little bit of Scooby Doo mummy going on too. I think, though, especially the one where he's grinning with the hostess Winky in his hand. I love that. I'm just glad I was able to do my uh, Skeletor voice from He Man and the Masters of the Universe. So. Hey, did you see that the the lens fell out of uh, Batman's uh, mask there? And the what is that? The one, two, three, fourth panel, fifth panel. Because every other one, his, his eyes are opaque, but that one there, he's uh, you can actually see his eyeball. That's weird. I can't. I don't see it. No, no. 
Yeah, look down at the, what is it? One, two, three, four. Yeah, fifth panel where where he's going. What is it? We've got to act fast. He's, right, uh, right. Yeah, I don't see his. I don't see his eyeball in it. Really? Seriously? What are, What are you looking at it at? Do you have the issue? I'm, I'm, no, I'm looking digitally. Ah, I wonder if they color corrected it or something. Weird. Actually, I would be remiss if I didn't mention one other uh, thing real quick about this. You can read the entire Bat Murderer saga in uh, Best of DC. Is this a Best of DC or is this one of those odd ones? Yeah, this is Best of DC number nine, one of those digest-sized DC books they used to put out. It puts the whole saga in there, and I think there might even be a little bonus. I think one or two of the stories in the back of this might be bonus stories from something else that are not related to the Bat Murderer story. Last yeah. one day show I was at, they had an entire box of them, but they wanted like ten bucks a piece. They're so getting yeah, they're getting pricey, but sometimes you can still find them on the cheap. Like that one that you got for me, the I think it was number one, isn't it? The one yeah, that that I got in a box of stuff from Jay and Silent Bob Secret Stash on eBay. Uh-huh. So that was yeah, that was that was a cheap one to find. The other thing I was going to mention here, and I just noticed it actually is signed by the artist. Very last couple of it's like the last four or five pages. You have um, I'm not sure how to describe these. They're not exactly cutaways or, or whatever, but they're kind of like um, they're almost like uh, Marvel handbook entries. But it's on the Wayne Foundation building with mm-hmm. a diagram, and then you've got the overhead view of the Wayne penthouse, and that also has floor plans and a diagram type of thing. Um, Terry Austin is the artist on the foundation bill. I'm going to assume he did both of them. I don't see his signature on both, but I definitely see it on the foundation bill. That's actually really cool. I like that. But, uh, yeah, that's a nice little way to, to get the whole story. I know it's been reprinted in other places, too, but that's that's how I have uh, my reprint. I have the original issues, but then I also have that, that little reprint of it as well. But that's all I got. Alrighty, well, finally tonight, we're jumping ahead to 1981. And last uh, episode, we we covered a couple anniversary issues of Spider-Man. And I decided for my Batman book that I was going to cover an anniversary issue of The Dark Knight. And about a year or so ago, I found on eBay, for cheap, I mean, it's not in the best of condition, I would say it would be mid-grade, a copy of Detective Comics number 500, which has this beautiful cover uh, where just about every artist imaginable has signed it because it's kind of a jam cover where you have Jose Luis Garcia Lopez and Bob Smith and Jim Aparo, Walt Simons, etc. Carmine Infantino. Yep, Carmine Infantino, who does the Batman and Robin on it. Now, there are seven special stories uh, in this one in this issue. And we have a Hawkman story, we have a uh, Batman and, I believe it's the Creeper team up later in the issue too. We have a Slam Bradley story by Jim Aparo. You know, these, these, are, these are all well and good, but there's one story in particular that I wanted to focus on that I first read thanks to the very awesome Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told. Not to be confused with Batman, The Greatest Stories Ever Told, which came out about six or seven years ago. Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told came out around 88, 87. Uh, I first read it uh, in 1989 after the release of the Batman film. No, 1990. 
my dad was getting a, getting my sisters like a bunch of Valentine's Day presents, and he got me that book for Valentine's Day. Weird gift, but uh, not only did it have a bunch of really cool Batman stories that I had never read before, including the Joe Chill Lou Moxon saga, uh, it also had a story that was written by Alan Brennert and drawn by Jick Giordano to kill a legend, Gotham City, 20 years ago. In every life worth remembering, there is a turning point, a moment in time when a decision is made and the course of a life is forever changed. A wrong turn, a second too early or too late, and things might have been different. For eight-year-old Bruce Wayne, that turning point is only moments away, and once it is reached, it cannot be taken back. Or can it? And we see, once again, the origin of Batman, where his parents are held up by Joe Chill, they're both shot dead, Batman stares at, or Bruce Wayne stares at him, Joe Chill goes, stop looking at me, kid, stop looking at me, and he starts to scream, and we go to Bruce Wayne waking up from a nightmare. And he does what any other, you know, wealthy playboy does after having a nightmare, he puts on a bat costume and swings across the city. Comes across a mugging, because, come on, it's Gotham City, of course there's going to be mugging. And while he's chasing the would-be perp, he runs into a fog bank. Suddenly, Robin shows up out of nowhere and has this <laughs> has this great line, Hey look, it's the good rich blimp. What? Dummy, Robin says as he punches the guy in the head. Good rich doesn't have a blimp. So basically, Batman and Robin have a, Hey, good to see you, but aren't you on a plane? And Robin's like, yeah, I was supposed to be on a plane how the hell did i get here and everybody's favorite mysterious uh superhero helper guy the phantom stranger shows up and basically starts talking about the fact that 40 years ago on earth 2 the waynes were killed and batman was born 20 years ago on earth 1 the earth they're on the waynes were killed and batman was born and on another earth which is unnamed, but I'm sure it's in that crisis um, handbook thingy. The cycle is about to begin anew. And he basically makes Batman the offer. Hey, you want to go to that Earth and stop the killing from taking place? And Batman thinks about it for all about 30 seconds and decides to go. Batman tells Robin that he has to stay behind, but come on, this is Dick Grayson in the 1970s. He's not listening to a damn thing Bruce says. So they escape into the mists and appear on a harbor, basically. See a bunch of bad guys, beat them up, surprised that the bad guys give up so easily because they're scared of them. And soon they're faced with Lieutenant Gordon and the Gotham City Police Department. Well, there's really no time to explain, so they evade the cops and assume their identities of Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson. Now, don't ask me to explain where they got clothes. Because they don't tell me. But suddenly they're in clothes and they go to the social register to see where the Waynes live. There they run into Barbara Keene, who looks a lot like Barbara Gordon. But this is Detective Gordon's fiance. but I thought it was Lieutenant. But anyways, she mistakes him for Thomas Wayne. And as they're talking, Dick has a look around and basically discovers that this world has no heroes, not even in fiction, no Robin Hood, no Camelot, no Hercules, Odysseus, Gilgamesh. 
He looks up a star chart to see where Krypton is supposed to exist, and it doesn't. So there's no superheroes and no literature to inspire them. Meanwhile, a thug named Joe Chill comes to town. Batman and Robin head to Wayne Manor, which, you know, you think they would have done in the first place. And they spy young eight-year-old Bruce Wayne being a bit of a spoiled brat and uh, Thomas Wayne about to commit child abuse. So Batman says, Dear Lord, it's as if they, or thinks, it's as if they've come alive again, as if I could reach out and touch them. Mother, father, I swear by all that's dear, I won't let you die again. And Robin's uh, opinion of the situation is a little different. This Bruce Wayne's a a spoiled little brat. I wonder if we stop his parents' murder, will he grow up to become the bored playboy that Batman only pretends to be? So, Batman dresses up as Lieutenant Gordon, gets all the files on Lou Moxon that he can, goes and confronts Lou Moxon, says, I know what you're up to. Moxon feigns ignorance, especially when it comes to knowing who Joe Chill is. Batman drops him, and the dynamic duo leaves. Moxon, meanwhile, is... Uh, is kind of confused, doesn't know how they know about his plans for Wayne, so he says he has to move the timetable up. So Joe Chill shows up and uh, comes into town, um, looks up Lou Moxon, because a guy named Charlie said Moxon's always uh, got work for a guy. Shoot, right about now, he'd be willing to do anything. Batman and Robin head back to Wayne Manor, spot Bruce Wayne playing with trains, um, Batman says, a boy who will see his family die before his eyes, he'll never forget that. Never lose the anger or the anguish. No one should be angry all his life, Dick. No one. Robin says, I know, but it seems so impossible. Chill could be anywhere. Phoenix, Toronto, Miami. What? Of course, Batman says. How could I have been so blind? I just assumed that this chill is, is like the one from our Earth, that he was from Gotham City. I didn't bother to check the interstate computer records of Police HQ up until now. So Robin continues sticking around watching uh, Bruce and Bruce play as the Waynes come in and say, Hey, we're going to go see a movie. And Robin's like, leaving for a movie? But Batman's parents were killed coming home from a movie. Of all the times for Batman to split, something tells me I'd better stick close to the Waynes and pray. So at Police HQ, Batman is confronted by Lieutenant Gordon as Robin watches the Waynes. Lieutenant Gordon points a gun at Batman, and Batman basically says, Hey, on another Earth, we were friends. I really need some help. Will you trust me? And against all odds, Lieutenant Gordon does. Batman tracks Joe Chill down and finds out that Chill is dead. He went to see Moxon, and Moxon flipped out because, you know, Batman had visited him before, and Joe, uh, Joe Chill left, but when he got back to his apartment, one of the goons was waiting for him and killed him. Batman looks at the date and says it's the, it sees that it's the 21st and thinks Joe is, Chill isn't the killer. Someone else is, and it's going to happen tonight. But how? Today is the 21st. It's not supposed to happen for five... Oh no, of course, I should have realized. My parents died 20 years ago. In that time, there have been five leap years. Five extra days that the calendar doesn't record. For all purposes, tonight is the night of the 26th. So he catches up just in time to see the hired killer that Lou Moxon uh, paid off to kill the Waynes about to 
you know, kill the Waynes, and Batman steps in and stops him. Beats the piss out of the guy, and the Waynes are saved. The Phantom Stranger shows up again, says it's time to go home, and they do. Epilogue. Three weeks later. Bruce's mother asks if he would like to shop for some new trains. And he says, no thanks, Mom. Got some things to do. Couple books to read. Excuse me. And on his night, uh, and on his bookshelf, his mother sees The Psychology of Crime, The Criminal Mind, an Ag- Agatha Christie uh, novel, and Sherlock Holmes. In a world where there are no heroes, apparently. She comments to her husband that Bruce has been so different since that awful robbery. And Thomas Wayne says, if by different you mean quieter, more studious, I think it's an improvement. Maybe we ought to get mugged more often. Outside, Bruce Wayne is training himself to the peak of his physical uh, conditioning because he saw a man in a bat costume. Years from now, he will make a decision, choose a direction for his life. And when he does, it will not be a decision born on grief or guilt or vengeance, but of awe and mystery and gratitude. The end. God, I love this story. Man, it's just... It's a great way of exploring the origin without necessarily retelling it, if that makes any sense. Um, The artwork by Giordano is fantastic. I love all the twists and turns it takes. I love that it starts off with a very moody retelling of the origin... The only thing I really don't like is that the Phantom Stranger is involved, but you can't <laughs> take him out of the story. I don't like the Phantom Stranger. The Phantom Stranger's much. an asshole. He really yeah. is. <laughs> I mean, every time he like showed up in 70s Justice League, it was always to say, oh, here, I'm dark and mysterious, do this. And they just freaking listen to him. And he's, he's a douchebag in a turtleneck. What's awesome is Robin pretty much calls him out in this. Robin says, you know, I know I just met you for the first time, but you're being kind of a dick. Do you maybe could you throw us a bone here? I love that. How, um, how is he actually word it? Let me see if I can find it real quick. That's, that's what that, he says. Yeah, that is essentially what he says. He, he's, uh, um, we've never met before, stranger, but I take it you're heavily into cryptic. Care to translate that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um... On page five, when the Phantom Stranger is talking about Batman's origin, <clears throat> Giordano does a really great Bob Kane-inspired Detective Comics number 27 homage right next to 70s Batman mm-hmm. with the Earths in the background. And I love... You know, everyone does like the Earths in the background, and it's really easy, you know, especially with the Flash and Green Lantern, to do the two different versions. Anybody hear that? Yeah, I hear it. What are you hearing? Crackle. It sounds like Pong. Actually, it does. Are you near the electrical lines, anybody? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but with Batman and Superman, it's a little more difficult. I just absolutely love that here, it's just like, okay, here's the Golden Age Batman, here's the Batman of today, side by side. Um, when they're on the alternate Earth... I like the differences that Brenner sets up. I'm a little confused by Barbara Keene. You know, how is his daughter his fiance? But, you know, it's it's a different thing. Um, is, the is, whole... Barbara Keen a, a, is Barbara Keene somebody who's in the other Batman mythos? Because that name seems familiar. Well, I know in Batman Year One, which, granted, that's a post-crisis story... 
his wife was Barbara, and I think she was in in Pre Crisis too. But I, I I'm not a hundred percent. But I know I because I've always been a little bit weirded out by the fact that his wife and his daughter were both named Barbara. Well, wasn't it actually a, a thing where his daughter Barbara was actually his niece? It wasn't his real biological the, daughter or something the, like that. In the post crisis era, it was his niece, but then. What's her name? Devin Grayson did that story where it was revealed that he and his brother's wife had an affair because his brother was just a complete piece of shit. But he and was Barbara a good guy and slept with his brother's wife. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. But I, um, I don't know. Ben Keen seems to be familiar to me from older stories that maybe she would... That was the name they had for Batwoman or something at one point? That's Kathy Kane. Kane yeah. Okay, yeah, forget that then. <laughs> Sorry, um, don't get mad. I'm not mad. Well, you, I don't go I, away. I, I, mad. I, I just very, go I, away. I feel very, very like uh, I was just yelled at. <laughs> God, Paul, you're so stupid. No, I... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just gonna sit here and crackle. Yeah, I wasn't even gonna answer because I was so hurt. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, if I was yelling at you, everybody in this house would know about it. Um, and I think the neighbors would know about it, and I think the people down at Walmart, which is like 10 miles away, would know about it too. Um, wow, I just really piss you off. <laughs> no, that's if I... Oh, never mind. <laughs> I'm done playing this game. Um, the action's pretty good throughout this story. Uh, Giordano draws a great Batman. Yeah, he always... Sometimes it's a little stiff... And I think the chest symbol is always a little too small when he draws Batman. But uh, it's still just a fantastic looking story. I do think it's a little creepy that we see on page 10 that Thomas Wayne is about to backhand his son for having a basically it's called a discipline change. and kids need it every now and again. <laughs> I know we've kind of forgotten that in this country, but uh, yeah. yeah. He's not as much of a jackass as Frank Miller would make him, that when his son, you know, falls into a hole accidentally, he starts screaming at him. But, uh... <laughs> um, I like the the whole twist on the Lou Moxon thing, that basically Batman goes looking for Joe Chill, and Moxon was gonna hire somebody. He doesn't know who Joe Chill is, so when Joe Chill shows up, he's like, oh crap, you're a hot, wanted guy. This dude beat me up, so I'm going to have you killed. And it's just... Just the only thing about this story that I don't like outside of the Phantom Stranger is the whole February 29th thing, the leap year. That's just that's just wacky. Because basically, they explained why it was five days earlier earlier in the story. He moved up the timetable. That's a better way of, of explaining why the murder is happening that night instead of, you know, on the 26th. So... I don't know if you guys felt the same way. Page 18, the shot of Batman backfisting the guy is really awesome. And page 19, I love the shot of Bruce Wayne in that final panel walking back towards Wayne Manor with the shadow of the Batman looming in front of him. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there is going to be a Batman in this world, but he's not a tragic character. He is a truly heroic one. He is doing it because it's the right thing to do and because he was inspired to do it. So, very cool. What do you guys think? Great story. Uh, I, uh, 
I had this one. I had bought this one new on the stands, and I had never read it until you said you were going to do this one. So I was happy to get a chance to read it now. Uh, I was also, uh, I had a note about Thomas Wayne about to smack the kid. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it just, I don't know, Just it just seemed like the way they presented it. He's, he's like, you know, one of those dads, anytime the kid even looks at him sideways, that hand is going up ready to smack, you know? <laughs> Why I ought to... Yeah, exactly. I am going to uh, slap I, you I, ball-headed is I was a little right taken aback by Robin's uh, crisis of conscience where... He starts thinking, well, maybe we should let these two people get killed because this kid's kind of a brat and he'll be better if his parents are dead. <laughs> so I, I, I found that a little troublesome until the end when at least he does finally decide, you know, Batman was right, I can't let this happen, and he starts diving in. It, it's kind of like the stories um, Generations played with this in the second Generation series. And I think there was actually like a Silver or Bronze Age story that talked about this. I think Charlie Niemeyer covered it on one of his, uh, or, or was it J. David Weeder on Superman and the Bronze Age recently, where basically Superboy knew what was going to happen and let it happen anyways, because if he didn't, the world would be left without Batman. And it's kind of like an interest. It's an interesting question to ask: is like this world has no heroes. So, and yeah, it is, is it, the brat angle, I'll agree, is kind of creepy, but the whole, you know, the, there's nobody in this world to inspire them, which I have a hard time believing. Well, and, and the way that's always presented, at least in the story, when they kind of hit on those, uh, those, those story points is, yes, but the creation of the heroes also begets the villains as well. That is true. So, so I mean, if you're looking at it from that perspective, if you don't inspire the, him to become the Batman, you know, maybe you won't have a Joker either. So, I don't know. It, it's, I guess, probably getting a little too metaphysical. Uh, I, I also noticed that he's reading Sherlock Holmes in a place where there's no heroes, so that seems like there shouldn't be Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Phantom Stranger is a total deus ex machina. He, it's, it's almost kind of a joke that he comes in because... You know, he serves no purpose. There's no real reason why he would send them to this. There's no no threat or anything that's that's presented. Uh, and overall, I like the art, but I was a little hot and cold in it in spots. And I thought, you know, maybe a little better inking might have made it a little better at certain points. Not that any of the layouts give me any problem. Just some of the figures look a little stiff, and I thought they could have been presented just slightly better in a couple of points. And that's my all my notes. Scott? Um, let's see here. Page three, last panel. That kid's never going to walk again. Thought that was pretty harsh. Um, and also, why is this old black woman dressed up like Santa Claus? I didn't get that at all. <laughs> well, you know, even Santa... I, I got nothing. <laughs> um, I feel I, bears repeating that the Phantom Stranger is an asshole. Yeah, you. He, Paul referred to him as a Deus ex machina. I prefer Deus ex douchebag. So. <laughs> That's like Latin for asshole, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, seriously. Um, 
does nobody stop to think for a minute that you know gee maybe maybe we just really should not have screw around with another earth's timeline you know what i mean um i think the only thing that saves this from being a much bigger nitpick i mean because at this point it's just kind of an observation for me that i just don't think that's a good idea but that would have been the major sticking point of this story if we hadn't gotten that last page of the kid working out to become his Earth's version of Batman. Because I can just see that, you know, if this story had played out the way that I thought it was going to play out, where Batman sails into this other Earth, prevents Thomas and Martha Wayne from being murdered, and that's just it, and this kid's going to grow up a nice normal life and everything, then, you know, 20 years from now, Gotham City disappears in a, in a Joker-shaped mushroom cloud. You know, it's like, what the hell? So I just I wasn't really crazy about the the I don't I like the Phantom Stranger in theory it's just this is what he devolved into is just you know like you say this Deus Ex Machina where he would pop in he'd give the hero a mission nine times out of ten it would be like well why the hell don't you just do it yourself you know at least in this one it was something where I don't think that the stranger could actually do this himself so that's why he's getting Batman in on it. But anyway, I, I just I wasn't crazy about the idea of him mucking about with another Earth in its timeline. I think that's I think you're just asking for trouble in a, in something like that. And I did kind of like Robin's uh, uh, crisis of conscience. I didn't really like his reasoning that, like you said, well, this kid's an asshole. So let's just <laughs> let his parents get murdered. That's kind of how it comes off. But I I get what he's. I think, anyway, where he's going with that, because I think he's kind of having the same thought that I did, is that do we have the right to do this? Should we be doing this? That's kind of what I took from from what Robin was saying in that whole thing. Um, Let's see. Page 11, fifth panel. That is an awesome shot, except that the bat, at least in the the one I'm looking at, it kind of looks like the bat suit is empty because of the coloring right there. I don't see any skin tone on on batman's face it's just all blue so it almost looks like an empty bat suit sailing over the city with robin but it's still the the perspective is really cool um i don't typically like solo uh dick giordano which is odd because i really really like giordano as an artist you know as an inker particularly on like uh john byrne or Neil Adams or uh, or Jim Apparel or any of those guys, you know, I really really like his inks. Um, I, I think Paul summed it up perfectly. Hot and cold. I'm I'm very hot and cold on solo uh, Dick Giordano, and I think uh, there's some really dynamic shots, some really good looking stuff in this, and then there's a lot of other shots where I think Batman and even Robin in a couple of them look a little beefy. They look a little chunky. And it's and they definitely look a little stiff in some of the the shots too. Um, favorite uh, page of the entire book was page twelve. Did Batman just kill those guys with a truck? Because yeah. I love that. I think that's yeah. awesome. It's yeah, another Earth, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> his, his his oath to kill is Earth one and Earth two only, and right. Earth, and, and it's 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 fair game. It's if, great. Though. If you they survived it. that, then this world does have supervillains. <laughs> he does, though. He pulls a total John McClane and takes him out with a truck. I love that. It's great. Um, 
I think that's about it. I uh, I was a little hot and cold on the story overall. I, I I think it was pretty cool. I I like the the basic idea, and I do like that the kid becomes Batman anyway. I think that's ultimately the saving grace to the story. If mm-hmm. it wasn't for that epilogue, I don't think I would care for this story. But I do like that element that that now. Uh, like you said, Mike. Rather than being a tragedy character, a tragic character, now he's he he becomes a hero through example, you know, through through inspiration. I do like that. I think that's an, you know, it'd be interesting actually to to go back and examine that Batman, mm-hmm. you know, if 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 this Earth had survived the crisis and all that, to go back and see what kind of Batman this kid becomes, because a Batman. Uh, inspired rather than a, a Batman, you know, formed through a, a sense of, of vengeance or whatever, it is an interesting concept. You know, what what kind of hero would he be? It'd be interesting to see him not become a costumed hero, but a a cop or a private detective or something like that, where mm-hmm. he's fighting crime, just not as a grim, you know, vigilante, but just you know, maybe working within the system. I mean, you can still you can still train yourself to the peak of physical perfection and learn how to be a master detective, right? Or and, or an not, Iron Man or something like that. You know, where he he becomes more, um, you know, more. Although we do see him working out and all, so I guess that doesn't that theory doesn't really follow. But I was going to say like technology based or something like that. You it's know? just basically he becomes some kind of social crusader and ends up fighting crime and you can go into like so many different ways and it still works it turns out in in this uh in this in this universe uh venus exploded earth moved closer to the sun he swore vengeance and he got the genesis and went after uh captain kirk Can I cook or can I cook? I just, I, I don't know. As soon as you said, could you, you know, it would be interesting to look 20 years later, I thought of the last line in Space Seed. There you go. <laughs> I, was, I was really afraid that one was going to fall flat, though. Much like that. This second story in here, uh, the Slam Bradley one, the art is bizarre in this. Yeah, Aparo, I, Aparo sometimes looks a little wonky. But I think he's trying... Slam Bradley is a uh, Golden Age character. He was from in Detective, Detective Comics number one. And yeah. I think he's trying to recreate a little bit of that Golden Age look. I, uh, I always feel weird about him because I realize that technically he should be more of a Batman character. Because he was in Detective Comics, but the first time I ever experienced him was in Superman, and he's also created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. Right. So he straddles that line in a really weird lady. I mean, in a really weird lady. God, it's late. <laughs> that was a Freudian slip. Uh, he straddles that line in a really weird way. Uh, so I, I like the character. The, the, the other stories in the issue are really good. I have not sat down and read the Walter Gibson Superman, I mean a Batman prose story, uh, but I really want to because it's always it was always interesting in this era. And the greatest Batman stories ever told reprinted another one of these where they would just do these random prose pieces. Wasn't Walter Gibson the Shadows creator? Yes, he is. Yeah, I thought so. Oh, I just realized this is not. A, I thought this uh, art in the prose piece was uh, was Bernie Wrightson. It's actually Tom Yates. That's pretty cool. 
Or not. No, I agree. Sorry, <laughs> I was yawning. <laughs> and I was actually looking at it while you were talking. It is pretty good. We're not always ignoring you, Scott. Just most mm-hmm. of the time. Just most of the time. Yeah, I knew that was coming. Ah, screw you both. I wonder if this it's, Dead Man story is any good. I couldn't get past the art in it. It's really... And I like uh, Carmine Infantino, but this is some rough-looking Carmine right here. Yeah, it's, it's getting to that, I'm drawing everything with a ruler Carmine. So. Yeah. I'm not a Carmine fan. I like his uh, Flash stuff. And uh, that's it. Although when I, when I... I didn't actually talk to him, but I was over by his uh, table and uh, my car show and I was listening to him and a couple people talk and he strikes me as an incredibly nice guy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, when you're 80 years old and trying to get into heaven. <laughs> <laughs> That's the loophole. <laughs> as long as you're nice when you're 80. As long as you, as long as you repent before you die. So you just mm-hmm. got to time it. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of DiManzocor of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.